Heenan. 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 Good gosh. Heenan. <laughs> I'm trying to make the boober real. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not-so-good old days, of World Championship Wrestling, series by series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by Das Wunderhost, Alec Wright. (laughs) Guten Tag. How's it going tonight, Al? Good, how's it going with you? (laughs) Doing alright. You knew that was going to be your nickname this time. That had to come up at some point, yeah. Yeah. Tonight, we're taking a look at Slambury 96. What goes up must come down. Hard. So is it about hot air balloon crashes? (laughs) Probably. Probably. (laughs) I could see that. WCW explores the uh, wonderful fields of airline safety. (laughs) Well, you know, it could be. It could be caber tossing. It could be caber tossing. Yeah? That would would actually potentially be a more interesting show, I think, than we're about to cover. At at points, yeah. At point, for sure. Slambury 1996 was held on May 19th, 1996, at the Riverside Centroplex in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, in front of 7,791 fans, with 6,308 paid, and it earned 110,000 pay-per-view buys. That's the lowest amount of pay-per-view buys for a WCW show in 1996, though it is still within striking distance of most. Except for Starcade 96's 240,000, all the other WCW pay-per-views in 96 got between 110,000 and 175,000 pay-per-view buys. It's a pretty good good area to be in, at least. It's not bad. Too bad. There's not a super blowout, really, this year, but there's no real downgrades, either. By the way, did you look at see what the arena's currently called? Uh, yes, yes, I did. The Raising Cane's River Center. Yes. <laughs> it's apparently, a, I looked it up because I was curious that I saw the name. It's apparently a regional fast food chain in Louisiana. Fascinating, really. They bought the naming rights, yeah. Okay. Would not have guessed that. Now, the pay-per-view buys are about 20,000 less than last year, which I'm guessing means that about 20,000 people had watched a Battle Bowl show before. <laughs> yeah. It's almost one of those shows where they, they shouldn't promote it. Yeah, Just yeah, like, probably. hey, watch Slambury, you know, you know it'll happen. <laughs> In-person attendance is similar to last year's, though this year isn't recorded as a sellout like last year was. It is worth noting, though, that paid attendance is about 1,500 higher. Well, that's good. Also, the Riverside Centroplex can hold between 8,900 and 10,400 people, depending on the configuration, so it seems likely that they got reasonably close to filling it up this year. Yeah, they don't have like a really elaborate stage or anything, so they just have, really have the ring in the middle and obviously the backstage area. Yeah. Before Slambury started up, there was a single match shown on WCW's main event TV show. The American Males, Marcus Alexander Bagwell and Scotty Riggs, beat Dungeon of Doom members The Shark and Max with Jimmy Hart. And just to be clear, because it's the 90s, it's Max with two X's. Yes, I was about to clarify. Yes, Max with two X's. 
That's actually Max Muscle, who was booked previously as DDP's bodyguard slash cheating aide in 1995. I will honestly state I had no idea Max Muscle ever joined the Dungeon of Doom. Um, I only know from OSW did a really thorough list and they covered that. Yeah. The tail end he joined and though nothing really came of it. Yeah, we're clearly in the period when they just kind of throw any heel that they want into the group rather than trying to keep with the theme. Oh, yeah. In any case, the match ended when Max accidentally clotheslined Shark while Shark was trying to power slam Riggs, so Riggs fell on Shark and pinned him. Shark attacked Max afterwards and got chokeslammed by the giant, so this is probably where we start uh, Shark's return to being John Tenta and his feud with the dungeon that we're going to see on the next few shows in 96. Correct. So this is a Battle Bowl show. We've seen Battle Bowls before at Starcades 91 and 92. There's two parts. First, in the Lethal Lottery, wrestlers are randomly assigned tag team partners, and then the resulting tag teams are randomly matched up against each other to fight through one or more rounds of eliminations. I'm not sure they can hear your air quotes there. (laughs) (laughs) The remaining teams, depending on the year, anything from 8 to 20 competitors, end up in the final Battle Bowl, Battle Royale, which has wildly varying rules, but one thing is universal. There are no more teams, and the last competitor remaining wins. Will this show be more of a Starcade 1991 Battle Bowl, or more of a Starcade 1992 Battle Bowl? To find out, let's go to the Lord of the Ring. <laughs> Aha. Now, Al, since there's like 11 billion matches on this show, and I'm sure a lot of intertwining storylines going through it, how about we take a bit here to go over the storylines heading into the show? Absolutely. Earlier in the year, there was a match between Harlem Heat and the Road Warriors for the right to challenge the Tag Team Champions, those being Lex Luger and Sting. Awesome. Also, shortly before this show, we began the super awkward Kevin Sullivan-Chris Benoit feud. Just a bit, yeah. Yeah. So that's his unfortunate happenstance that they end up on the same team together. <laughs> Speaking of which, we last left him, Randy Savage was super mad at Ric Flair for attacking his dad. He has even more reasons to be mad at him, and also super awkward storylines he have running here. Yeah. The gist is that real-life uh, divorce couple, Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth, I guess had made up and been friends after, because they divorced a couple years before this, this storyline started. So it wasn't like a super fresh thing, but definitely too fresh to really use in the wrestling storyline. Yeah. Uh, so they put in the story that she was wooed by Flair, and Flair is quote-unquote spending Savage's money... Um, by way of her. Yeah, I, I really, I would imagine they did, but I really hope that they got everybody's okay before introducing that. I mean, I would imagine Randy Savage and Miss Elizabeth could say no. Oh, yeah. They're both prominent enough that I don't imagine that this would get by without their approval, but oh, no. still, that's, it's really probably a storyline that shouldn't have happened. <laughs> On a less awkward subject... DDP is back in this storyline after losing a loser leaves WCW match back in March. However, there's really convoluted and silly explanation for how he's back. It basically involves the clause of the contract not actually being honored properly, and he hits a mysterious benefactor, which allows him to earn his way back in. He really should have come back as uh, as Charlie Brown from out of town. That would have been great. <laughs> I could have gone behind some of those matches. Yes, yeah. 
Last worth noting is that there are two people that were announced for Battle Bowl, but were replaced fairly last minute in the buildup. The first was the Belfast Bruiser, who was quote-unquote coincidentally put on a team with his arch-rival, Stephen Regal. Mm-hmm. He's taken out of the match due to Meyerstein's legit injury. So they were very nice, nicely replaced him with William Regal's tag team partner, who Meyerstein was not involved, was not involved in Battle Bowl at all. So Okay. The other was Hard Work Bobby Walker. Aww. He was scheduled to be Barbarian's partner, but in kayfabe, he was attacked during a match by Lex Luger, so they said he was injured, and so DP's benefactor found a way to stick him in there. Ah, okay. Also, just for a fun historical note, a week before this show, DP wrestled his first match back officially, which was on WWE Worldwide, a show that is not on the network still, so I had to go through YouTube and find people uploading matches here and there. His opponent was a young pre-heroine, Billy Kidman. Okay. <laughs> and just to be clear, Billy Kidman's original gimmick when he's with the flock is that he's clearly doing heroin. Yes. He's constantly scratching himself. Just to clear that, I'm not saying he actually did heroin. We are not suggesting that Billy Kidman was actually doing that. Yet, just to so. make sure. Because, yeah. <laughs> we don't have a legal department here, but I feel I should make that clear. <laughs> right. Yeah, the, the closest I have to a legal department is a collection of Phoenix Wright games, so let's not get us in trouble here. Absolutely not. <laughs> Here's a lovely person. Oh, wait, one other thing to note, it's kind of funny. So, the whole gimmick here is that you have to win, what, three matches, two tag team matches, and then the Battle Bowl itself, take a title shot. Right. Because title shots are a big deal. Not everyone gets title shots. With that in mind, I should note, people who've gotten title shots before this show happens. Okay. This would be between Nitro and Worldwide, where a bunch of title matches randomly take place. We have three people. We have Jim Duggan, who for some reason is also going through Battle Bowl to get a title shot which he already had. Well, I mean, I, I guess it didn't go his way, so... Obviously not, yeah. <laughs> Lex Luger, who had a title match the week before the show. Yep. We also have The Shark. <laughs> they all got title shots on random B and C shows before this. Yeah. And two of them are now going back into Battle Bowl to get another title shot. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, like I said, if it doesn't go your way, then go ahead and jump back in. Yeah. It just feels like it undermines the concept. A little that bit. I need to do all this work to get a towel shot. Like, or just wait till they randomly pick me backstage. Yeah, I guess I guess you can look at it as like, you know, you can either wait for the luck of the draw, or you can guarantee that you're getting a title shot by doing this. Right. You know, because it might be a year before you get another one or something sure. like that if they go by randomness. And if you win, there's certainly no way they they take that match away from you. So, oh yeah. yeah, definitely. Don't no no possibility of that. Right. So that makes sense. <laughs> Tonight, the Battle Bowl. 16 teams of two battle against each other, pitting friend against friend, aligning friend and foe, ending with a battle royal to determine the Lord of the Ring. And three belts are on the line. Cruiserweight and U.S. Heavyweight. And for the WCW World Heavyweight title, the champion giant is challenged by Sting. Still stunned by the choke slamming of his friend and partner, Lex Luger. Tonight, live from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it's Slamboree 96. Is it just me or when they start talking about Luger's choke slam? Do you feel like you hear the Wilhelm scream in the background? Yeah, there's a weird dissonance to the audio there. <laughs> I think it's because we're getting the audio directly from this and they're they're looping in other audio, which is not quite the same level. Yeah. yeah. 
I think it's them like fading in the crowd noise during that clip. Yeah. <laughs> I guess based on what they said, next time we see Sting, he'll be standing back there shocked and stunned, like staring at a wall. Can't believe that happened a week ago. <laughs> we open with a video package that covers the Battle Bowl concept, as well as the singles title matches that we're going to have tonight. And a bit of good news, we've hit the WCW Cruiserweight title era. Nice. Thank goodness. Only the Sting versus the Giant match really gets any kind of build-up here, though we do get an epic Sting jacket during the video package. I can only describe it as Dark Rainbow Peacock. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's accurate, yeah. I I guess, uh, would you say that Sting in this bit is uh, is getting this title match because he won the uh, 1991 Battle Bowl? Yeah, that's that's how it works. He finally is getting that reward. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) He had a, what was a one-year delay in getting his ring, and this would be a, what, five-year delay in getting the title match? (laughs) Well, you get the ring, and four years later, you get a title match. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Which I I guess means on next year's show, it'll be, what, the Great Muda challenging for the title? Yeah. Look forward to that. (laughs) Perhaps notably, we're fast approaching the NWO era, And in the background during this whole thing, we've got black and white footage of wrestlers facing off and a bit of ring action. There's a bit of a close-in, rapid-cuts feel to it that feels very like the style that they're going to end up using for NWO promos. So I kind of wonder if this might have been them starting to work that out. That makes much sense to anything else, yeah. That video package done, Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show alongside co-host Bobby the Brain Heenan and the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Dusty has an awesome red leather jacket. Mm-hmm. Very cool. <laughs> I feel like there's a, there's a later show with Dustin Road where we see him wearing pants that seem to match that jacket as well. I feel like it, yeah, yeah. Something like red leather chaps he wears, yeah. Tony builds up the Battle Bowl concept. This year, it's for the title of Lord of the Ring and a shot at the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, currently held by the Giant. Tony notes that hated foes Ric Flair and Randy Savage have drawn each other as partners tonight and asks how they're going to handle that. Heenan says there's no way they're going to get along, and even now they've got police separating them in the back. Tony builds up some of the other totally random drawings. The Steiner brothers will have to face each other tonight, as will the Road Warriors. Tony turns to Dusty and mentions Giant chokeslamming Sting's best pal Luger through a table. Dusty says Sting has to get focused, or he'll find himself chokeslam too, as Heenan wonderfully mimes a chokeslam in the background. <laughs> <laughs> He's gold. Yes, absolutely. We hear Hawk's What a Rush as the Road Warriors theme starts up, and Tony throws to our first match. So our first match is the first match of the Lethal Lottery, Road Warrior Animal, and Booker T versus Road Warrior Hawk, and the total package, Lex Luger. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. And wow, the Road Warriors ended up on opposing teams in the first round. Bad luck on their part. Mm-hmm. The Road Warriors theme this year sounds very Mega Man to me. Hmm. Yeah, I can hear that. It's funny that they didn't have Booker come out first, so they could just have Animal and then Hawk come out in sequence and not have to switch music between them, though. I mean, if there's a way to do things awkwardly, they're going to do it here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's just like rule. I think it's like on a sign backstage at WCW tapings. Yes, yeah. 
Luger, of course, now has his tremendously catchy 1996 theme <laughs> and some very nice pyro during his entrance. Yeah. Heaton notes that Luger's conditioning saved him after that chokeslam by the giant, but then implies he knows something about Luger, but refuses to tell the others. <laughs> Hawk immediately goes after Booker and ends up lining up with Animal, who is staring Luger down. Tony points out the Road Warriors have just instinctively lined up like they're teamed up, and that they don't like Booker or Luger. Uh, I believe during his earlier, more heelish phase during this year, Luger had uh, hit one of them with like a roll of silver dollars or something like that. Um, that or did he hit him with this? Um, his like his Lex Flexor, I thought. Yeah, something like that. I forget. Anyway, he was he definitely had some very nasty confrontations with the Road Warriors earlier in the year to explain that. Hawk gets in Booker's face, and Animal cools everything down so the match can start. Animal and Luger start us off, and Luger sells his own strikes. <laughs> That's what he's here for. <laughs> Booker yells at Animal to fight better. Luger hits a power slam, but Animal fires back with shoulder blocks, earning a loud Luger sell for that one. <laughs> his own power slam, and a flying shoulder block, then no sells a Luger suplex as Luger flexes. Dropkick by Animal, and he tags Booker, though the two get in a bit of a shoving match. Booker works Luger's arm, but Luger levels him with the clothesline. Dusty is convinced that Luger is still a snake in the grass, but Heenan says Luger used to be an intelligent businessman, but now that he's hanging with Sting, Heenan thinks he's not that bright. <laughs> Booker dodges a Luger elbow drop, Spinneroonies up, and hits a jumping sidekick for two, and later a jumping scissors kick for one as Hawk breaks. Luger gets in Hawk's face, upset about the early save. They shove each other, and everyone's into brawl. Hawk and Animal throw Booker and Luger out, and Animal chases Luger away while Hawk batters Booker. Nick Patrick declares it a double countout, eliminating both teams. The Road Warriors celebrate anyway. <laughs> I mean, they get paid either way. Booker claims his team won, but, quote, they cheated. He's he's aware Animal was his partner, right? Not not Luger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he he's kind of in the ref. I think the ref cheated too. Oh, okay. I mean, it is it is Nick Patrick, so right. The crowd chants for the LOD, and Booker swears revenge. The commentators are disappointed that the Road Warriors didn't face each other. Thoughts on this one? It's a decent match, but it really, given everyone in it, should be a lot better. Mm -hmm. The gimmick here really handicaps the match for me because basically what you get is you get a couple singles matches put together but it's never truly a full tag match because as you mentioned hawk and animal never lock up at all right but it never quite comes together i know it's not super bad as in other matches but there's a, a bit of stalling here especially early on so it's it's tricky because there's really good moments like booker t doing his uh spin and rooney to get up and yes kick. That he's so smooth on that. It is amazing, yeah. Yeah. So it's a mix of stalling and waiting for someone to stop selling a move and do something else, and then these really big bursts of energy. Now, they can work, but this pacing is a little off for me. Yeah. Obviously, the big problem is just the finish. The counter finish doesn't do anyone any justice. And as you mentioned, again, there's no payoff to the whole road warriors are on the side. Well, they do, because they just don't do anything. Right, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would characterize this as a pretty fun start to a tag match. Yeah. Luger and Animal gave us some nice uh, power wrestling, and I like their power slam face-off. Yeah. 
Booker got to show off his kicks, which are awesome. Mm -hmm. And Luger, of course, dedicated some wonderful bellowing selling tonight. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He is spectacularly loud on this one. Yeah, there's parts where they're on the hard cam, you still hear him. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, super loud. Yeah. Luger's selling is as loud as the stinger call. (laughs) That's true. Makes sense. They're buddies. Absolutely. The, the trouble is, it just kind of stops, and more importantly, stops before showing us the most interesting thing that it could have, which would be a fight between the Road Warriors, as you pointed out. Yeah. I don't actually mind the way the ending happened myself, but I just really wanted them to at least have a couple exchanges first between them. You don't book the Road Warriors might fight, and then not do it. Yeah. So despite some pretty good action, this really falls flat without having that big moment in it. I think I guess to a thing that's a pretty common issue going shows in this era is you have older established stars that are used to working matches certain mid eighties, early nineties wrestling style and booking style, but we're in a newer era at this point. Yeah. And there's a bit of a disconnect there. The whole let's all double count out, let's all fight outside thing is a very eighties thing to do when I'm sure there's a hundred real words matches that in that way. Mm-hmm. It feels out of place a little bit. It's not a terrible finish. It's just disappointing. Yeah, I think you and I had both said, like, what they really could have done was go ahead and have Hawk and Animal fight. And then, like, Booker tries a cheap shot on, who is it, Hawk that's not on his team. Yes. And Animal gets upset about that. And you can make that lead to the total breakdown. Yeah, sure. There just doesn't feel like there's a strong enough reason for it to totally break down. Luger just gets oddly upset about Hawk saving him from a pinfall. I gather that the idea is like Hawk broke it at one. So Luger's like, I could have broken out on my own, mm-hmm. but it's just not strong enough to be like, wow, the match should totally break down, but they just didn't, I don't know. Maybe the road warriors didn't want to fight, but yeah, it's, it's weird. Or you could have done something where it's like a personal uh, sort of insult. Like you had like Booker set up Hawk, for instance, as part of the doomsday device and try to get animal to, to do the right. Yeah. Sign and then he's like, I'm not doing that to my buddy. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that causes, but yes, if you're not going to have the payoff, you have to have some reason why there's a stoppage, right? It just feels like they just kind of got where they wanted to go and didn't yes. think about how basically. Yeah. Weirdly, after all of this, there's no appearance on the next show, which is the great American bash from either Harlem heat or the road warriors. Oh, weird. Now, the stuff involving Luger, but we'll get to that later. We go right to our second match. So, for the second match of the Lethal Lottery, it is the Public Enemy, that's Flyboy Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge, versus the Taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan, who is accompanied by Jimmy Hart, and teamed with Chris Benoit of the Four Horsemen. The referee for this match is Randy Eller. Wow, the Public Enemy ended up teamed up. They lucked out. Yeah. Meanwhile, Kevin Sullivan and Chris Benoit are teamed up well in an absolute blood feud. That's crappy luck right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the public enemy come out waving their hands in the air, totally out of sync. <laughs> now, are they waving like they just don't care? Well, clearly. <laughs> okay, there you go. There you go. The crowd does a much better job of waving their hands in an actual rhythm. Kevin Sullivan has one of the greatest ring intros ever as he's announced from The Iron Gates of Fate. (laughs) Holy crap, that's awesome. (laughs) Sullivan glances over his shoulder at Benoit far behind, clearly not trusting him. Sadly, Benoit comes out with generic rock instead of the awesome horseman theme. That is weird, because he's in the horseman. 
Yeah, I get. I guess like maybe Arn gets it more often. It's kind of like partially Arn's theme. I don't. Yeah. Know. Wasn't there a show over here? We hear it. Th- it was Robert Parker's uh, faction That's theme. It. I think you. earlier. Yeah. Benoit is wearing his 4-H tights. Yes, love. yes. So it's there is not to. Oddly, Sullivan and Benoit actually high-five. I'm not sure if that's Sullivan playing like he's getting Benoit off guard, or if both just kind of went on autopilot doing a standard tag match intro. Could be either one. <laughs> yeah. Dusty looks around for the public enemy's plunder, but Heenan thinks that he said plunger. <laughs> No, it's WF that had the wrestling plumber, not WCW. Yeah. Benoit and Rock start, and Rock rakes the eyes and hits a head scissors and a Hurricane Rana. Heenan asks Dusty what he'd do if he had to team up with his most hated rival. Dusty notes his most hated rival would be Heenan. Of course. And Dusty would beat him up and go home. (laughs) Tony approves. Rock loses his balance momentarily on a stomp. Dusty says the stomp was just that hard. Good cover. Yeah, it's fine. Benoit counters another Hurricane Rana into a powerbomb, then mocks Rock's dancing, lands ground punches, and shouts, Never mess with the horsemen. Benoit's showing personality? What? Yeah, yeah. This is a crazy night overall. Heenan says that his strategy would have been to let Dusty do all the work. (laughs) Yeah, it's all about Dick. Tagged to Sullivan, but Grunge runs in quickly too, and Sullivan and Benoit dump the enemy out. Everyone brawls outside, and Sullivan hurls a chair at Rock as Dusty is ecstatic about plunder. If every hardcore match had Dusty bellowing about plunder, I would probably like them a lot more. That would definitely give it at least another half star. Yeah. yeah. We view the match in two tiny split screens, so it becomes pretty much impossible to follow for a bit. There's one part, where I think when they first go a split screen, where they're looking at, I think it's um, Rock and Sullivan, mm-hmm. and the other one is pointed at them from far away. So they're actually on both screens. It's just the same thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, it totally denies the purpose of a split screen there. It's pretty funny. It's like one from like the far right angle and one straight ahead of them. Yeah. Rock gets Sullivan on a table outside and goes in to try a dive, but Benoit clotheslines him. Rock suplexes Benoit to the floor, and Sullivan hurls a chair at Grunge and into the front row of the crowd. Mm-hmm. It's been a while since we had dangerous metal objects hurtling into the audience. <laughs> Too long? <laughs> Rock puts Benoit on the table, punches Sullivan, and drapes him over Benoit. Sullivan fakes unconsciousness and holds Benoit down. Rock vaults over the ropes into grunge, and Sullivan dodges aside as the public enemy land on Benoit and send him through the table. Sullivan hides a grin and claims his knee is hurt. Rock pins Benoit, and grunge needlessly holds Benoit's leg for the three count and the win. <laughs> yeah, that last bit's a little strange. Yeah, I don't get like Benoit is not even moving. I don't know no. why Grunge is bothering trying to cheat by holding the leg down. <laughs> he's very thorough. That's all. Yeah, I guess so. Sullivan acts like he's trying to get back to the ring to help, while Hart holds him back and forces him to leave. That got me cracking up. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? This one um, has similar problems as far as the like match layout for me. The opening part, where it's Rock a Rock and Benoit, feels very fluid for the most part, other than the, the stomp being a little off. Mm-hmm. I went to look it up, but I don't. They must have have some interaction in ECW during Benoit's brief time there, because it doesn't feel like it's the first time they fought each other. No, absolutely, it feels like they've got some experience with each other. Exactly. So that part felt really fluid to me. 
And I, if they kept the match going like that, I've been re- really liking it. But then they again saw hardcore element where I guess there's no DQ in these matches. Apparently, all of a sudden there is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Countout is still a thing, but there's no DQ. Yeah, so you go from this pretty fluid match where Benoit actually has a little personality and viciousness, and then it's fighting outside on the floor with some really, sometimes really painful looking chair shots. Yes, oh man. Before Rocka Rock and Johnny Grunge. Because they're they're not using folding chairs, they're using like regular chairs. Yes, yeah, I, I, I neglected to mention that. Yeah, it's a full normal chair, not a, yeah. not a folding variety, yeah. So sometimes it's like the metal legs hitting one in the back, which I'm sure doesn't feel great. No. But other times it's like turned where the front of the seat is coming down to them. Yes. And that does not look pleasant. As far as the finish goes, they at least do a good job with it. It sets up the, the whole Sullivan can't be trusted thing, and he, he's using the situation against him. So I, I didn't really have a problem with that one. Again, really, really short. Yes. But this used the Benoit Sullivan storyline quite well with a subtle animosity between them and a nice tease of them maybe, just maybe, being able to work together before Sullivan finds just the right moment to betray Benoit. Mm-hmm. The match is just kind of set dressing for the angle, I would say. Sure. Rock has a few good moves, though, and Benoit does show more personality than normal. And Sullivan apparently delights in hurling chairs at everyone in the vicinity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Grunge is there, I guess. He doesn't really get to do much. That's true, yeah. Sullivan and Benoit made that ending work pretty well for me, and Sullivan's little grin before he starts acting like he's hurt is perfect. Yeah. He he clearly grins and then visibly hides it. It's it, it's like pitch-perfect acting there. Mm-hmm. So it's not much of a match, but it is a fun showing all the same. Obviously, given what happened, the Taskmaster Benoit will continue leading into a last-man-standing match at the Great American Bash. Our third match is, again, part of the Lethal Lottery, and it is Sergeant Craig Pitbull Pittman with Teddy Long and Scott Steiner versus The Booty Man with The Booty Babe, Kimberly, and Rick Steiner. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Wow, the Steiners have to face off against each other, too. What are the odds? It's amazing how how random this thing happens to be with 32 people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Again, WCW doesn't have Scott and Rick come out in sequence, so they can't just leave Steiner's music running. Mm -hmm. Heenan claims that the Steiners constantly fought growing up over the last scrap of food, including a hot dog that their mom cooked with a lighter, which Dusty thinks means barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) He also says that Rick Steiner had his mustache since he was a year and a half old. (laughs) I almost believe that, actually. I almost believe that, yes. Tony tells us that these are four men the fans like and respect. One of them is named the Booty Man, so at the very least, respect seems doubtful. <laughs> yeah, that's... It just, it's Adlessie in general, so yeah. Yeah. Pittman and Booty start. Pittman gets a hammerlock, but Booty rolls him into a pin. But Pittman presumably makes the ropes. They don't really catch it on camera. Pittman hits an unusual jumping headbutt to the gut. Tag to Scott, and Heenan screams for a tag to Rick. He really wants to see the Steiners fight. But Booty disappoints us all by continuing to fight. <laughs> Scott, double underhook powerbomb, and he tags Pittman in to get the two. But Booty reverses an arm ringer and tags Rick. Rick and Pittman bark at each other. 
I love that. Might as well. <laughs> and Pittman makes crazy eyes. Rick hits a power slam, but Pittman hits a belly-to-back suplex. Heenan jokes that didn't hurt Rick since he landed on his head. <laughs> Rick hits a monstrous Steiner line, but Pittman crawls over to Scott. Scott hesitates, looking uncertainly at Rick, but he lets Pittman tag him to huge cheers. Heenan encourages sibling rivalry by reminding Scott of all the times he had to use Rick's hand-me-downs. <laughs> <laughs> Scott gets a fireman's carry, but Rick counters with a headlock takeover for a few one-counts. They trade waist locks, and Scott hits a nasty side suplex, but eats a Steiner line. Scott looks hurt, so Rick pauses to check on him, and Scott rolls him up for one. <laughs> Scott lands hard forearms, and Dusty says it's getting personal. Scott full Nelson, but Rick slips around and hits a dragon suplex. Rick goes up top, but Scott charges and hits a side suplex off the top rope. Rick tags out to Booty, who almost immediately charges into the ring post. <laughs> Scott and Pittman work Booty's arm, and Pittman slaps on the code red armbar. Booty scoots over to Rick, who tags him over the middle rope. Heenan protests, and based on some of the earlier Starcades, I'm pretty sure that Heenan is right that it has to be over the top rope. Yes. However, Anderson counts it and forces the unaware Pittman to break the hold, and Rick hits a bridging back suplex right in front of Scott. Scott stands there, indecisive, and decides too late to get in, so Anderson counts three, and Rick gets the win. Rick and Booty celebrate their win, and Kimberly says that she likes their teamwork. Heenan claims the M on the Steiner's University of Michigan letter jackets stands for moron, or misfit. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Uh, it was a nice one uh, overall, I thought. Even if it is kind of short, like most of these yeah. these battle matches are. But then he started a match, it's very hard-hitting. They have me deliver in that regard. Oh, yeah. And the technical skill you see with their throws and everything is really nice. Mm-hmm. Pittman, for his part, I think stands up pretty well with them. Yes. I don't know his full history, but he definitely, he seems comfortable with their style. Yeah, I felt like since you can't have Rick teamed up with Scott, obviously, Pittman was a really, really solid choice. Yeah. He has a very similar style himself, not as hard-edged, but the same kind of like mix of amateur wrestling and, and some throws and everything. Yeah. Obviously, the odd man out here in this booty man, yes. whose style doesn't really mesh with anybody's. It's not like he's terrible in this, it's just everyone is doing these throws and locks and he does knees and, you know, runs to the ring post. Yes. He doesn't, like, botch anything, it's just he doesn't seem to fit the rest of the match. It's a clash of styles where it's it's not, like, a lucha wrestler and a power wrestler where you get the interesting dynamic. Right. It's just, it just doesn't fit in. Right, exactly. The finish is well done, and like you said, you see... Scott sees her reticence to break up the move with involved attacking his brother. But it's a little less dramatic for me because Pittman's attempt to escape a suplex pin is to scoot backwards towards the ropes. <laughs> true, yes. Rather than trying to turn his shoulder at all. Yeah, true. <laughs> I also wonder if anyone, assuming we're not the only one that watches these shows, you know, in 2021, you know, 25 years after they happen. How many people will get the reference with Craig Pittman finisher being called the Code Red? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of topical, I guess, for then, but it's it kind of forgotten. Yeah, so if you don't know, it's from the movie Few Good Men, in which they order, the whole movie is about whether or not they ordered a Code Red, 
which is where they sort of violently haze would be a way to say that, I suppose. I, I, I guess so, yeah. The recruit, which ends in his death. Arguably accidental, arguably intentional. So the whole crux of the finale is that the lawyers, Tom Cruise, has to get Jack Nicholson to admit that he ordered a code red. Yes. And now you know the truth, and hopefully you can handle it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this one was lots of fun. Mm-hmm. The focus of the match was building to the confrontation between the Steiners, and unlike the first match, they actually gave us that fight, thrilling the crowd. The Steiners did not do a long fight, but it was a good one, with some excellent throws and slams, hard hits, and some really good character work playing up their brotherhood, especially that bit where Scott suckers Rick in by acting hurt. That's definitely a little brother move. That, that, is, that is absolutely... You're familiar with that. <laughs> a, a little bit. <laughs> So, minus the booty man, this was everything the first match should have been. Yeah, no, I agree with that, yeah. If you had done exactly the same idea with the Road Warriors ending up facing off, don't make it conclusive. But, you know, have them face off for a bit in the middle and then find another way to end the match. I would have liked that first one a lot more. Yeah. And what's interesting is because, obviously, a couple years after this, we had the actual Steiner Brothers split when they right. both become single stars. So it's it's good, interesting to see a little foreshadowing there. Absolutely. Following this, they would keep a feud going between the Steiner brothers and Fire and Ice, who we'll see later in the show. Okay. They have a match in the next Nitro, which, much like the first match in this show, ends in a double count because they're all fighting on the outside. That's actually just set up for a pay-per-view match at the Great American Bash between the two teams. Okay. So at least it's excusable to have that on free TV to build up pay-per-view match. Exactly. Rather than the other way around. Man, that that's a batch of four big balukas, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Our fourth match is again in the Lethal Lottery, and it is the Blue Bloods, Lord Stephen Regal and Squire Dave Taylor with Jeeves, versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan and VK Wall Street. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Wow, the Blue Bloods just happened to draw each other as partners, but sworn enemies Duggan and Wall Street drew each other. What good slash bad luck. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> Regal verbally abuses Jeeves, who Dusty calls Chives. Yes. <laughs> he cannot get that, ever. He goes great in potatoes. Oh, man, that's awesome. I'm rather torn on Wall Street's suit that he wears out for his entrance. Kind of a neat design that looks almost like a navy dress uniform with the sort of the button pattern that it has. But then it has this big old dollar sign on one lapel that looks amazingly cheesy. <laughs> I don't know the exact timeline. It was a few years before this. He was a boat captain. So I wonder if he retrofitted a jacket. The Captain Mike Rotunda gimmick? Yes. Rather? Yeah. Because he, he was that and then he left WF for a while and became IRS. Yes. Which is basically what this gimmick is. Yes. Basically. Essentially. It's IRS slash Million Dollar Man, kind of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He did a fusion dance and became <laughs> the, the tag team together. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible he just used the jacket he had and just, like sewed that on there. Yeah. For me, I get a real Talking Heads vibe because it clearly doesn't quite fit right because mm-hmm. he's wearing it over his normal gear. Yes. Yeah. A little bit. So you know, it'll be form fitting because just to peel off and wrestling. It's not as bad as Terry Taylor's that one year though. The, the, oh, the smoking right. jacket that he had that just looked ridiculous. <laughs> yes, they did for that one. VK Wall Street's name is, of course, a jab at WWF owner Vincent Kennedy McMahon, because wrestling companies have the emotional maturity of three-year-old children. Basically, yes. 
Tony mentions, as you did before, that Fit Finley was going to participate in the Lethal Lottery, but a recent brawl put him on the sidelines, which allowed Taylor to enter. From the sound of what you said earlier, originally it was going to be Finley and Regal. Correct. Instead of having the tag team or the two sworn enemies, you would have had two sworn enemies on both sides. Yes. Okay. Hacksaw leads a USA chant, and Regal looks rather intimidated. Regal goes to get in, and Hacksaw swings his 2x4 into the turnbuckle inches from Regal's hand. Regal hilariously oversells that, checking his hand very carefully and showing it to Taylor to check that his fingers are okay. (laughs) (laughs) Then he threatens the crowd some more before he finally climbs in. Heenan credits Duggan for returning to the ring after becoming a brain donor. (laughs) (laughs) Duggan chases Regal to the corner, and Regal cowers but then makes a muscle pose, pushing his bicep up to make it look bigger. (laughs) (laughs) Duggan leads another USA chant. Regal jabs Duggan, but Duggan hip-tosses him and goes for the tag, but Wall Street ignores him. Duggan yells at Wall Street, but Regal attacks from behind. Duggan beats him up, and when Regal tags Taylor, Duggan lunges over and tags Wall Street before he can back off again. Dusty notes the similarity of Taylor and Wall Street's fighting styles. Their looks are pretty similar, too, actually. Yeah, very very similar. Taylor and Regal work Wall Street's arm, including a really neat Taylor aerial spin into a wrist lock. But Wall Street, ironically, beats Regal in a European uppercut slugfest and aggressively tags Duggan. Wall Street and Duggan argue, and Regal attacks Duggan from behind again, but they collide on a whip, and Regal tags Taylor as Wall Street walks away to prevent a Duggan tag. Duggan decks the Blue Bloods and Wall Street, then doubles Taylor over, shoves Regal over him, and while Patrick is distracted preventing Wall Street from charging in, tapes up his fist. Regal tries to warn Taylor, but Taylor turns right into a Duggan tape fist punch for the three count and the win. Patrick somehow doesn't see the roll of tape hanging from Duggan's fist, (laughs) (laughs) even as he holds his hand up in victory. It's he's holding that hand. I know, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh! Because Duggan, he does it like a speed roll on it. It's actually fairly impressive how quickly he does that. But yeah, <laughs> but it leaves like half the roll hanging off his arm. Yeah, I, I sympathize with him. If you've tried to tear tape like one handed, especially mm-hmm. that doesn't work too well. Usually, <laughs> you get it all tangled and mess the roll up and everything. Yeah. You really need a dispenser for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thoughts on this one this one for me was pretty inconsistent which is kind of unfortunate because i really like regal I've, i haven't seen a lot of taylor but I've, i haven't been disappointed by any of his stuff obviously this point clear i'm not a big fan of jim duggan <laughs> yeah I, I i think we've i think we've established that yeah like this case i wasn't clear yeah so what this match comes down to for me is regal really does his best to make duggan look good he <laughs> uh, oversells reaction to all these hits he goes over really well for every move He's giving everything to Duggan, and in return, Duggan is just basically punching people the whole match. Yeah, pretty much. I really feel bad the most for poor Dave Taylor, because other than the one bit you mentioned, he doesn't really do anything in the match until he gets tagged in, accidentally backdrops his own partner, and gets punched and pinned. Fair enough, yeah. I actually wonder what the booking was if that was going to be uh, Finley, but Belfast Bruiser. Like, would have been the same this thing? This would be a very different match, I would imagine. In I, I would think so. So, Duggan, because he's in a match with three heels, he feels like, well, Teen's okay then. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of his thing during this whole year, I think, is the tape fist punch. You're just like, it never quite makes sense for a face. Right. What do you mean in the logic? Okay, so, so he's taped his fist, so he hits, what, 10 times harder now? Yeah. Well, it becomes like a rock. Oh, is there like metal? Is there like metal in that tape? It's it's like if you hit someone with a boot that no longer has a foot in it. It's like you know suddenly the boot that weighs a lot less, it hits a lot harder. Yeah, the the weight is more is dispersed differently, so it's all the bottom. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. It's it's the idea that he's the guy who fights from underneath and you know gets the crowd chant for him. They just blatantly cheats all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought this wasn't much of a match, but there was some good character work here from Duggan and Wall Street, mm-hmm. who nicely played up their animosity for each other with some very passive-aggressive tags, leading up to an actively aggressive punch. The Blue Bloods really get the short end of the stick here. They don't get to really show off anything impressive and end up losing against opponents who hate each other. Regal, in particular, has a lot more to give than this match allows, and I feel like the Blue Bloods would have benefited from this being a lot longer, so they could work over Duggan or Wall Street more between angry tags. Yeah, this is a great period with Regal, where he's TV champion, and he has all these great matches with big stars. You know, him and Bulldog, is one, him and Arn, I know. Obviously, we covered him and Steamboat. Right. And then this is just like, oh, because I'm sad. Exactly, yeah. I did kind of like that Wall Street ended up the distraction to benefit Duggan despite himself in the end. Yeah, sure. Duggan ticks him off, so Wall Street's not running in to help Duggan. He's running in because he's mad at Duggan, but uh, still ends up serving as the distraction. That was pretty funny. Yeah. It's not very face-like of Duggan, as we pointed out, to do pretty much anything he does in the final moments of the match, but it is a fun moment. Yeah. So this was enjoyable from a character standpoint, at least. Regal does rebound pretty nicely. He has a singles match at the Great American Bash against Sting. Ooh. Yeah. Like, we're sorry we gave you that match with Duggan. Here you go. <laughs> That's what I think happened. Our fifth match, again in the Lethal Lottery, is Dirty Dick Slater with Colonel Robert Parker and Earl Robert Eaton with Jeeves versus Das Wonderpunk, Alex Wright, <laughs> and Disco Inferno. The referee for this one is Randy Eller. So, uh, again, long-running rivals, Wright and Disco, have to team up. That's a shocker. Huh. I guess they'd end up liking it, though, since later on they'll make it official as the Dancing Fools. Yes. Dusty calls Eaton the Duke of Earl. (laughs) Heenan jokes that Tony started breakdancing during Disco's entrance, and Dusty joins in with a riff on Tony's dance skills at a party. (laughs) (laughs) Tony can't get a word in edgewise for a little bit. It's really funny. Slater and Disco start, and Disco cowers and tells the ref to keep Slater away from his hair. Slater takes Disco down, but Disco kicks free of an ankle lock, then stops to dance. So Slater taps him on the shoulder, elbows him in the head, and chops him. Disco tags Wright. Wright uses his agility to out-wrestle Slater and Eaton in turn, and lands a series of strikes on Eaton, culminating in a jumping back kick for two. Slater back in, and he lands a neckbreaker, but Wright counters a pile driver with a back body drop and tags Disco, who takes Slater and Eaton down with punches and a jumping elbow. Everybody in, and Disco nearly runs into Wright as Wright charges and crossbodies Eaton and himself out of the ring. Disco dances, but Slater takes off his boot 
and nails Disco with that most deadly weapon for the three-count and the win. Eller is curious about Slater's missing boot, but lets the result stand, and Parker sneaks the boot out in his jacket. <laughs> he makes sure to show it to the camera. Yes, yeah. Because he's a proper heel. These boots are made for clubbin', Heenan jokes, cracking Dusty up. (laughs) Chives gives a cigar to Parker to celebrate, and Parker pats him on the head. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts on this one? It's pretty nothing, and also it's really short, too. It's about 40 seconds shorter than the last match, which seems like the shortest one, but yeah. So, thing for me with this match is, at this point, and to a certain degree later, Disco is kind of all character and not much else. Yes. He has given matches where he surprises me and does do pretty well. So it's not like he's useless, but it's definitely more the character than anything else he brings to the table. Mm-hmm. In contrast, Alex Wright has the opposite. He doesn't really have much character other than dancing, but he's really good in the ring. He just can't quite mesh the two things together, find a personality to make his match interesting, accentuating his moves. Yeah, the best match I think I've seen for him for that was the match he had with Anderson. Yes. Something seemed to click in that one more than normal, mm-hmm. and he actually got more character. But this one, it's back to kind of the normal for Alex Wright. Like you said, really good in the ring, but not really anything else going on there. Right. This day, you would watch an Alex Wright match, you're like, oh, he's pretty good. Then you wouldn't remember it, you know, an hour later. Right. You would think the two of them together would sort of compensate, but the way the match is laid out, and because it's so short... It's basically a bunch of characters from Disco, Alex Wright does some okay stuff, and then they, the match is over. Right, yeah, exactly. And the only upside for the match is that finally get to see Dirty Dick Slater for the first time. His true nickname. Yes. <laughs> Although I say nickname, even though Dirty is not in quotes. Right, so it's just, it's, that's his first name, right? Yeah, his first name is, yeah, first name Dirty, middle name Dick, last name Slater. <laughs> he had really mean parents, apparently. Yeah, apparently so. <laughs> It's like, did anyone just tell him, just go by Rick? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Before we started the show, this was the version of him that we saw first. And I remember you being just like stunned when we saw him. What was it on? Starcade 84, was it? Yes. Where he has like the really good performance on that. And yeah, yeah, you were like, oh man, he reminds me of, uh, who is it? Dean Ambrose? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) The sort of unhinged wrestler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was a basic short match. Wright and Eaton do a pretty decent bit of fast action, but it's not much more than a sample of what they can do before this very quick match is over. Disco doesn't do much other than dance and get attacked from behind, though he's decent enough with his character work. Mm -hmm. Slater doesn't really show much here either, just a generic big brawler. Unlike the other matches tonight, this had neither the interest of what if these tag partners fight, nor interesting character work, so it really needed something more, and it didn't have it. It's not, like, a bad match, but you can easily skip it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as Disco and Alec Wright go, Disco would have a match the Gorilla can bash, but it'd be a dark match, which he loses to Jim Duggan. Ouch. So, yeah. Not much lateral movement there. <laughs> Our sixth match in the Lethal Lottery is Diamond Dallas Page with Gigantic Cigar, and The Barbarian versus Meng and Hugh Morris. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Wow, what a surprise. Barbarian and Meng on different sides? Huh. Meng and Hugh Morris together? Imagine the luck. Yeah. 
It's a shame they couldn't find someone that was shooting with Barbarian and team him up just to just get everything together in one big match. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting really, really tired of tag matches. It's only like six more, so... <laughs> I know. <laughs> Paige and Morris start. Paige shows off, and Morris laughs and mimics him, so Paige pokes him in the eyes. <laughs> Feels like the Three Stooges here. I bet, yeah. Paige works the arm and uses Morris's hair to keep him in a hold, but Morris' shoulder blocks him to the floor. Morris dives, but Paige dodges, and Morris eats safety mat. Back in, Morris catches a Paige kick, but Paige hits his spinning lariat for two, then tags Barbarian. Morris soon tags out to Beng. Barbarian and Meng beat the crap out of each other yes. with mighty chops, elbows, and clotheslines. No selling repeatedly. I'm pretty sure Meng even no sells an eye rake. Yes, he does. And then Barbarian no sells his no selling. <laughs> <laughs> Until Barbarian finally takes Meng down with a high back kick, and DDP runs in so Barbarian can slam him onto Meng. Awesome spot. Yeah. Meng dodges a Barbarian elbow drop and headbutts him, then tags Morris. Morris slams Barbarian and hits a top rope elbow. In a nice touch, DDP tries to jerk the ropes but is a second too slow. But Morris stops his pin, laughs, and goes for another. DDP cannot believe his luck, and succeeds in crotching Morris on the top rope this time. <laughs> well, now he's going to be singing the tenor section, huh? Jerk. <laughs> you had to know that was coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Barbarian hits a really sloppy superplex. Yeah. But Meng breaks at two with a nasty kick to Barbarian's head. Paige tries to get in, and that distracts Anderson, so Meng slams Barbarian, and Morris hits his moonsault for two as Paige saves with an almost sliding elbow drop. Meng and Paige trade blows, and Meng lands a heck of a sidekick as Barbarian big boots Morris. Meng and Barbarian pin Paige and Morris, respectively, and Anderson counts three. Meng thinks he's won, but Anderson awards the match to DDP and Barbarian because Paige's foot was under the ropes when he was being pinned. He might much more easily have noted that it's because Barbarian and Morris were the legal men. Right. Or that one pin started after the other one. True as well. A day's page celebrates with Barbarian. As Heenan notes, now Anderson has to be the ref to tell Meng that he lost when he thought he'd won. Not a fun job. No. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? It's a strong match overall, but there's definitely a bit of a sloppy quality to it. In a certain way, that that works, because Meng and Barbarians often has this real sort of rugged, yes. like, you know, hitting each other really hard and really rough moves that has a nice bit of realism, because it, it I think it is pretty, pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. They don't hold back each other at all. It's, it's like when you watch um, Mick Foley and Terry Funk wrestle. Yes. They would just hit each other full power every time, just because just they felt they had to, for whatever reason. Or when you watch Vader wrestle anybody. <laughs> yes. Very true. Just in the Ming and Barbarian's case, there's definitely a cooperative aspect to it. Yes. More so than with Vader. You, with Vader, you just know what's coming. So Right. You have to sort of accept it. But yeah, for every bit that's kind of sloppy, uh, like the superplex that we talked about, mm -hmm. there's some really good spots that I think a lot of it comes down to DDP. He has these little touches, like he said, trying to grab the ropes the first time during the top rope move. Yeah. Just sort of always being aware of where he is. And the where that he's sort of always on is a quality he has here. 
Yeah. I'm sure because knowing GDP, he spent, what, two weeks probably sketching this match out to every single spot. Yes, probably. Obviously, there's no way we can know, we know for sure what goes on behind the scenes on these, but it does feel like in this and another few moments tonight, you really see DDP's touch. Yes. The the intricacy and choreography of a moment mm-hmm. that that it feels like you get from him. And so I would I would wager he had a lot of input into the night, especially with it being, as we'll get to much later, a very important night for him. Yes. Because it's, this match is an interesting dichotomy, I guess, because sometimes you're seeing these really rough-looking sidekicks and then no-selling. Sometimes you're seeing these really creative spots with DDP, and then sometimes you're seeing some moves are actually generally impressive. Like, I thought Hugh Morris hit his moonsault better than I often see him do it this time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That was a good one. His aim was quite good. Yep, absolutely. Other than that, one superplex looking a little scary, it all works here pretty well, I thought. Yeah, I couldn't tell exactly what happened with that one. It felt like one of them just didn't have their grip quite right. Mm-hmm. And so they just, it doesn't look as solid as it should. And Morris seems like he starts to slip. Yeah. They get through it. Like, I, I, should clarify, they get through it, it doesn't look like anyone gets hurt. No. But it, it just is a little scary for a moment. Yeah, the timing-wise, it seems like maybe he starts to slip, so you have to throw now or else you don't throw at all. Right, yeah. Yeah, weird ending aside, watching Meng and the Barbarian just batter each other was a lot of fun. And there's some very neat spots to this, like Paige being slammed onto Meng, or Paige getting a second chance at using the ropes against Hugh Morris. It was another really short match, but they kept the action very fast and pretty intense. And like we said, aside from the one kind of dangerous superplex by Barbarian and Morris, the moves were pretty crisp, I thought, and the timing was very good. I think most of the matches on the show are all right so far. I Mm -hmm. I should clarify that. It's just that they're also very similar, and it's getting very tiring. Yes. Our seventh match, also in the Lethal Lottery, is Big Bubba and Stevie Ray versus Fire and Ice. That's Scott Flash Norton and Ice Train. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Oh, look. Fire and Ice just happened to end up together. What are the odds? <laughs> <laughs> I like Bubba's trench coat. It's kind of a cool look. They mentioned it's part of his recent rebranding. Yeah. Stevie Ray is wearing the red Harlem Heat outfit, where Booker wore the blue one earlier. It's kind of a double dragon thing going on, I guess. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Speaking of red and blue, Fire and Ice have the same scheme. Hmm. Could have coordinated that a little bit. <laughs> Norton and Stevie start. Dusty predicts that Bubba and Stevie are going to win, but Heenan picks Fire and Ice. Stevie cheap shots Norton on a break and lands strikes and clotheslines but Norton fires back with a flying shoulder block and some splashes in the corner. Big Stevie clothesline actually sends Norton airborne. (laughs) That was kind of amazing, honestly, to see. And Stevie tags Bubba for a big windmill punch. Heenan makes fun of Dusty for pronouncing Bubba as Bubber. (laughs) Yes, he does. Bubba charging splash, and he hits the Bubba slam, which is now a spine buster, for two. Yeah. That's weird. Yeah, he, he definitely called it that before, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's like it's more of a the slide slam, yeah. Yeah, that was strange. I guess since Ron Simmons left, he can just take that. Yeah. It's a good spine buster. I like it. Yeah, sure. Bubba charges, but Norton tosses him into the air and lets him drop, 
then tags Ice Train, who lands a surprisingly high jumping butt drop for two. Mm -hmm. Train catches a punch and crushes Bubba's hand, but they clothesline each other down. Train crawls for the tag, despite that being the first big hit he took. (laughs) Norton facebusters Bubba. Stevie attacks, but Norton clotheslines him. Stevie rolls to the apron, and Norton sends Bubba into him. Then Norton and Train hit a double shoulder block on Bubba for the three count and the win. They should call that the thermal shock. Well, that'd be good, yeah. That'd be good, yeah. Quoth Heenan, I'm not the kind of guy to say I told you so, but if I was the kind of guy to say I told you so, I'd have to say I told you so. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Uh, Thoughts on this one? Much like the previous match, there's a real rugged quality to this. The difference for me is that there's certain ferocity to what you guys noted with Ning and Barbarian punching each other. And there's definitely some of that here, but it doesn't quite feel the same. Yeah. There's also less variety to it. The previous one, it's you know, a series of slams, it kicks and punches, or clotheslines. There's a lot of punching in this match. Right. And a lot of clotheslines. Yes. There's one of these matches... That, might even be this one where Shemaya sort of jokes about that, saying it's clothesline of mania. Uh, yeah, it, it might be this one, yeah. There's been enough of them after, what, seven matches that he's definitely noticing a pattern. <laughs> yes. The match overall is pretty decent. Like with Ming Barbarian, there's a certain realness to how they throw each other around. Which, like, it's one of the things, if, if you were shown to someone who like, sort of new to wrestling, it might be good because it's pretty believable the way they these big burly guys, you know, knock each other down and throw each other around, so. Yes. The beef in this match is impressive. <laughs> yes. It's USDA approved, yes. Yes. <laughs> the funny thing to me with this match, I noticed the more it went on. So, Scott Norton with his more blonde than usual hair. Is that, am, I, am I wrong? Is he, he's not normally this blonde, right? I don't think so, no. I, I, know, it's, I right picture more br- like a brunette, like his brown hair. That might be something he does in the Fire and Ice era. I'm not not actually that sure. That could be. It might make sense with the the flame aspect, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, so with his more blonde hair than ever, his blonde goatee and his all red outfit, he looks like buff Guy Fieri. <laughs> he really does. <laughs> I can see it. I will I will I will put up a side by side I can see on their it. page. Yep. It it is it's eerie. Yep. I'm also really tempted to call Ice Train Snowpiercer, but I'll resist it. <laughs> For me, perfectly acceptable match, full of big men running into each other and throwing each other around. Ice Train's jumping butt drop was probably the standout. He got impressive height on that. And I want to clarify, that's impressive, period. Not impressive for a guy his size. No, yeah, for sure. He, he darn near matches Sting's jumping ability with that one. And that's a move I know you don't generally like, at least when uh, Finley does it. No, I mean, you, you gotta be a big dude like Ice Train for it to make any sense. Sure. <laughs> it felt really odd how quickly he got back out after taking basically one hard move, though. But it's a three-minute match, so match flow is kind of non-existent. This worked well enough, I thought. Depending on the previous match, there's a certain level of extra nuance with what DDP added. Yeah. That's just lacking here. Otherwise, it's fine. Right, absolutely. There's there's a bit more thought into the previous one. Yeah. And where this one is, it's big dudes hitting each other, but there's nothing beyond that. Yes. The DDP element, I think we can credit in the previous one for making just that extra touch better. Absolutely. Uh, as you sort of hinted at in the beginning of this, this will be the start of the 
Dungeon Doom aspect with the shark when he would leave the group and be constantly attacked by Big Bubba. Yes. Leading to him rebranding himself as John Tenta. The main method of attack Bubba would use to get at the shark slash John Tenta would be cutting the poor guy's hair. Yes. The point where he'd shave one side of his head and apparently as like a a sort of show of defiance, he wouldn't just shave the other side to make a match for quite a while, actually. Can you imagine going through the airports like that? No, I cannot. Poor, poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. I, it was like full hair and beard on one side, like right down the middle and nothing on the other. I mean, let's be clear. I, I would suspect that John Tenta got precisely zero jokes made by anyone going through the airport because he's huge and you would not mess with him. Certainly not within hearing distance of him. <laughs> right. <guess>. Yeah. <laughs> but man, that poor guy. Yeah. Our eighth match in the final match of the first round of the Lethal Lottery is Eddie Guerrero and The Enforcer, Arn Anderson, versus The Macho Man, Randy Savage, and The Nature Boy, Ric Flair. The referee for this one is Randy Eller. How amazing that Randy Savage and Ric Flair, who hate each other, have ended up as a team. Can you imagine the luck? And look, Flair's best friend, Arn Anderson, is against him, gasped the whore. Yes, it's... That's shocking. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just all gasped out from all these surprising <laughs> events. Yeah. Eddie has his great sparkly jacket. Arn gets the awesome horseman theme, but sadly walks out pretty fast, so we only get a little bit of it. Mm. Heenan gives us a great extended woo <laughs> as Flair's music starts. That was good, yeah. But Flair doesn't come out. Heenan wonders if Savage got to Flair. Savage's music starts, and Savage comes down to the ring. The outfit this time is a little bit of a color clash. He's got the pink and black jacket and pants, but then a silver and black hat. Doesn't look bad, necessarily, but it's just kind of, like, not quite coordinated. Yeah, his pomp and his circumstance don't quite match. (laughs) Flair's music plays again, and Flair finally peeks out from behind the curtain, as Arn Anderson attacks Savage from behind. It was all a trap, as Flair charges down to the ring and doffs his green and gold robe on the ramp, then climbs in to go after his own partner, Savage. Arn and Flair beat up Savage, but Guerrero drags Arn away and shouts at him. Anderson gets out, and Guerrero wins a slugfest against Flair. Heenan spots Savage lying on the apron and says that he's trying to crawl home. (laughs) Miss Elizabeth and Woman come to the entrance ramp. Guerrero lands rapid drop kicks, but Flair thumps him in the eye, quote-unquote tags Savage, <laughs> elbows Savage in the head, and forces Guerrero's hand to tag Arn. Arn throws Savage in and beats him up with big strikes as Savage tries to go after Flair. Arn nails his awesome spine buster for two. Mm-hmm. Very good. Guerrero and Flair tag in. It's kind of hard to tell with Guerrero, but Flair definitely tags himself in. Flair beats up Savage, but Guerrero taps him on the shoulder, pokes him in the eye, and chops him hard to earn a Flair flop. Guerrero hits a terrific dropkick and a swinging DDT. Savage lunges and takes Flair down for rapid punches. As Eller tries to separate the partners, Arn has words with Guerrero, but when Guerrero looks away, Arn DDTs him. Arn pulls Savage away and smashes him into the barricade and post, and Flair pins Guerrero for the three count and the win. Flair and Savage advance, but Flair and Arn keep beating Savage up outside. 
Blair brings Elizabeth over, and she slaps Savage. Arn DDTs him, and Flair gives us a woo as the group goes to pose for the camera and show the horseman sign. Flair goes back to stomp Savage once more, then retrieves some flowers from his ringside table and hands them to Woman as they walk off. We see that Savage has at least managed to drag himself to his feet by the barricade, but the commentators wonder if he can continue. Thoughts on this one? It's pretty short, but they cram a lot of story into this one. Yes, they do. I think the real winner for me here is Eddie, because Eddie, fortunately, doesn't advance, which is kind of a shame, but this real Christmas to everything he does in this match. Mm-hmm. Even in the point where he has one drop pick normally, and then there's a slight delay, so he actually, instead of doing the drop pick too early, too late, he pauses, then does it at the right time. Yeah, his timing is spot on with everything. Yeah. So it's that one moment where he could, if he'd gone right when he meant to, it would have been off. He goes, wait, no. That will yep. do it. Yep. There's little things like that that separate good wrestlers from great wrestlers. Mm-hmm. That's that you really see in here. The biggest thing for me of this match is, so, the plan that Anderson and Flair have. I get they don't like Randy Savage, and obviously he doesn't like them. So their plan is to beat him up severely, but then make sure he wins the next match so Flair gets into the Battle Bowl, which makes a certain amount of sense, but they still have another match to do. So was Flair's plan to come out and win his tag match by himself? I, I presumably, I guess. I mean, it's just it's it's the Ric Flair thing. There's like three quarters of a good plan, and then somewhere near the end, you're like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Okay, I, I, I I'll give you one possible thought that he's got. Go ahead. Maybe because he saw that the Road Warriors and Booker T and Luger had a double countout in their match. He knows there's going to be a buy. Mm. So his plan is to hope that he gets the buy, or maybe he thinks he's got someone in his pocket that'll give him the buy, and that way he doesn't have to worry about Savage accompanying him for the second match. I mean, if there's a way he could guarantee that, that would make sense. Look, it's still a better plan than his Halloween Havoc 95 one, okay? Where he oh, just, for sure, yeah. It has a complicated months-long plan just to punch Sting once or twice. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's, it's just so weird. Yes, it is. <laughs> If this was the only teaming of rivals tonight, I think this would work really, really well. The weirdness of the plan aside, they really pack a lot of emotion into it. Unfortunately, it's not. We're eight matches in, and in every single match so far, we've either gotten a tag team just happening to still end up together, a tag team on opposing sides, or two rivals forced to team up. Not only does it beggar belief that all of this would happen at random, it seriously dilutes the impact of this use of it, mm-hmm. which is the one that absolutely needs to have an impact. Seriously, pick one tag team to stay together, one tag team forced to face each other, and one set of rivals to team up. Leave it at that. Even that's a lot, but at least it keeps some variety. Mm-hmm. As for this match itself, taken purely on its own, it was really good. It's a perfect use of the Battle Bowl concept to give the heels an opportunity to be really ultra-mega evil. Yes. Kick the Flair and Savage storyline into an even higher gear, and build up Eddie Guerrero as a terrific babyface. This match felt like a better version of the Starcade 91 uh, Sting and Abdullah versus Pillman and Eaton match. Yes. In that one, they tried to keep a normal match halfway going, and just kept interrupting. But in this one... They just gave in to the chaos right away. Yeah. 
It's a good spectacle, and it really makes Guerrero look good, both as a person and as a fighter, despite the fact that he finally goes down to a dirty Arn Anderson trick, Yeah, as most do. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed this one a bunch. I just would have enjoyed it even more if it wasn't the eighth match to try to get cute with the Battle Bowl concept. Yeah, it reminds me of, to a certain extent of Stark at 85, where every single match has bleeding in it. Whether I think every person in every match bleeds in that show. Pretty pretty darn close, if yeah. not. Yeah. 99% of them do. And it's the same show that has that, admittedly, still really brutal, really well done, I quit match right, between yes. Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard. And so like, if that show, if they had no blood and then suddenly that match, it, it's so much more impact than it does. Right. For that one, they had to go extra level, basically, to be shockingly bloody on a match with everyone bleeding. Leading us to, I believe, the only TVMA rated Stargate. Yes, it is, it is the only one I've seen the party. Yes. <laughs> I was like, what's on this show? I remember they're watching there. Yeah. But so, yeah, to your point, they don't quite do enough to make this one stand out with so many matches doing the same thing. Yeah. It's hard for them, because it's just like... You had a terrific idea, I think, here yeah. for how to boost this storyline. But unfortunately, you've got, like I said, you've got seven other matches before you yes. that are doing at least something like this, and one or two in particular. Sullivan and Benoit and then Duggan and Wall Street are already doing the partners that can't get along. Yeah. It it just really, it cheapens it. Yeah. And I think the fact that it still makes an impact is a testament to how well they do, but it doesn't make near as much of an impact as you want. Yeah, the fact that you have four really good people, really great people in this match is the only reason, like I said, it has the impact it does with all that happens. If you get done this match where you don't just have them fighting the whole time, that being Savage and Flair, play up the tag part of the can't get along thing, albeit with a more aggressive degree, if you're going to do this match, this show in this order this way anyways. So that way you could have a really good match involving... You know, Eddie, Eddie could fight Savage, which would be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. You'd have Flair and Eddie, you'd have all these matchups in there. And then once you need to go for finish, have Arn, for example, throw Flair over the top rope to the outside and accidentally get caught. And then, oh no, we <laughs> advanced, you know? I could see that, yeah. Um, Something to that degree. Or heck, just have Arn throw Savage over the top rope, because why, yeah. why the heck not, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I could see doing that. It would be interesting if at least one of the pairings of rivals that shouldn't get along just actually manage to coexist yeah just to be different yeah yeah and to your point if they had done it with anderson throwing savage out that's extra motivation for savagery man and you you know follow that with them the beating up savage on the outside right so then when we get later with that whole thing makes even more sense and it doesn't feel like there's a giant flaw in the plan that anderson and flair have tonight right we cut to our commentary team and tony reminds us that the first match was thrown out because of that, one team is going to get a bye, moving into Battle Bowl without having to have another match. Dusty notes that Macho probably can't coexist with Flair if they have a second match, and Heenum repeats his point, so they start arguing. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes tag teams have to coexist to be successful, Tony says. So do broadcast teams. <laughs> Heenan looks at Dusty's jacket and says, Yeah, but that can't always happen when one guy's wearing a recliner. <laughs> Tony tries to just move on, talking about the upcoming title matches as the crowd chants Weasel at Heenan. Tony asks if the Giant will win the world title match, or Sting, and Heenan wonderfully nods along with Giant and shakes his head at Sting. (laughs) (laughs) 
Tony throws to a wonderful ad for the Great American Bash. Oh, yeah. Ah, the family outing. Mom, Dad, the kids, and meat on the grill. This ain't no picnic. It's WCW's Great American Bash. Forget the Backyard Olympics. We've got our own. It's a WCW Father's Day you'll never forget. The Great American Bash. Live and only on pay-per-view. To order, call your cable operator now. Oh, man, this video. (laughs) (laughs) We see a family backyard barbecue. Only one of the kids is Rick Steiner. The meat is cut into a WCW shape, and Scott Steiner creepily laughs at the camera as he grills it. I am unclear on his relation to Rick in this fictional reality. That really bothered me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. I do want to see someone in an actual barbecue do a WCW shaped meat. I, I kind of, yeah, I kind of wonder that, like, would that hold together right? It'd be, it'd be neat. Sting tells us this ain't no picnic, and we get shots of wrestling footage, but we cut back to the barbecue for a moment to see Sting chilling out and Scott Steiner helping a lady chuck a horseshoe at Rick Steiner while the dad looks on in stunned disapproval. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> also, I think I would pay good money to see a WCW Backyard Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> this is when the ones released they don't know what their show is going to be but they know a general idea of this whole summer theme they just go all out yep. without any story to, to talk about those honestly probably are WCW's best promos mm-hmm. like when they don't know what's going to happen they come up with nonsense which is great <laughs> yes that's true we cut to Gene Okerlund on stage and he's standing there with Angela, Melissa and Kim from Hooters He has Melissa shuffle around some envelopes and draw one to choose the team that will get a bye in the second round. It turns out that Fire and Ice get the bye, going directly to Battle Bowl. Word is still out on whether they get to Pasco and collect $200. (laughs) Gene makes the drawing for the first match of the second round. That'll be Dick Slater and Earl Robert Eaton versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan and VK Wall Street. Gene throws back to Tony, Heenan, and Dusty for our next match. But our next match is Brad Armstrong versus the Iceman, or the Man of a Thousand Holds, Dean Malenko, for Malenko's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So if you go back and listen to our Starkey 1995 episode, how Jinjiro Otani would become the inaugural WCW Cruiserweight Champion, uh, they'd have a big tournament, which would culminate at Hyper Battle 1996. Awesome. A truly Japanese show. <laughs> where he'd beat Wild Pegasus, who, of course, is Chris Benoit with his mullet. <laughs> so now we have a, a new title. This is not quite the rebranded Light Heavyweight Championship. And we have a new champion, although he works for somewhere else. So the way you get around that is that Sinjiro Tani go on one of your pre-taped worldwide shows which is part of the Universal Studios tapings they would do, which, again, makes me have to go to YouTube or other sources to find the match. Yes. So that match takes place on May 18th. That's the airing date of it, even though it actually happened on May 2nd. Okay. That's less of a break, at least, than the prior show. Yes. But yes, and Jiratani makes, as far as I can tell, his first appearance as Cruiserweight Champion on their C show that runs on Saturday night. Oh. So he can lose the title to Dean Malenko, 
the day before pay-per-view. That sounds like that would be a pretty good match. Yeah. I mean, Atani, I recall, I was really liking from Starcade 95. Mm-hmm. He kind of blew all of us away. Yeah. And then Malenko's always great, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it also means we don't get a Shinjiro Atani Brett Armstrong match. That that kind of makes me sad, yeah. As 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 neat as it is to see Armstrong face Malenko, mm-hmm. Armstrong Atani would be pretty fascinating as well. Yes. So yeah, to take nothing away from Dean Malenko, it's just kind of weird that they have a champion and then have him lose the title right before the show to put on someone else. Yeah. America jacket! Yes. <laughs> Brad Armstrong finally, finally comes out wearing the American flag jacket that we've been looking for since the very first time he showed up on the show, which I think was Starcade 85 or 84. 84 or 85. I can't remember which. I want to say 85. Yeah. I am so happy. <laughs> Yes. This show is forgiven of all its faults, every single one. <laughs> Not really. No. But I am super happy to see it. I swear, if you put Armstrong in his America jacket with Sting in his Captain Sting America look, you'd have an amazing July 4th wrestler tag team. <laughs> Absolutely. Better than Stars and Stripes, for sure. Yeah. I don't care what else happens tonight, Brad Armstrong wins Slampery 1996. <laughs> The commentators nicely discussed the inversion of expectations represented in this match. In the tournament to set up the title, Brad Armstrong actually made it further than Dave Malenko did. But Malenko has now become the champion, as you just discussed, and the initially more successful Armstrong is in the role of challenger. That's true. Armstrong gets the advantage in some rapid mat wrestling and locks on a surfboard into a side headlock, but Malenko whips free and catches an Armstrong kick. But Armstrong nails an enziguri. Rapid counters lead to an Armstrong arm drag and drop kick that only barely tags Malenko, but Dusty covers by saying Malenko managed to mostly dodge. Malenko rolls out, and Heenan notes that Armstrong might be ready, but Malenko's the one controlling the tempo. Back in, Malenko challenges for a test of strength, but then just drop kicks Armstrong in the knee. <laughs> <laughs> Heenan very nicely sells the Iceman persona by noting that Malenko's lack of change of expression made it really hard to judge what he was about to do. Malenko works over Armstrong's knee with an incredible variety of leg holds, strikes, and slams, including a deathlock, rebounding slingshot knee drop, shin breaker, step over toe hold, and tree of woe knee drop kick. Armstrong counters off Malenko's shoulders for a roll-up for two, but he's limping so badly that Dusty says the ref might have to stop the match to save his career. Mm-hmm. Malenko continues working the knee, including drop kicks, a sliding drop kick, and a very cool pretzel fold. <laughs> yeah, pretty pretty mean hold, for sure. Yes. Armstrong looks in intense pain, but will not give up. So Malenko continues the abuse as we get a shot of WCW's Spanish announced team, And Tony says this is the first WCW pay-per-view that's being broadcast in Mexico. Armstrong finally gets a foot up on a splash and stuns Malenko. Armstrong hobbles and lands strikes, but his hurt leg slows him down. Though in one case, that's actually good, as he can't charge in after a corner whip and just watches as Malenko tries to go up and over, then slugs Malenko. (laughs) (laughs) Armstrong power slam, and he limps up the ropes for a drop kick then slaps on Malenko's own Texas Cloverleaf hold. Malenko drags himself to the ropes to force a break, then pulls the tights to send Armstrong outside. Armstrong blocks a turnbuckle ram and sends Malenko into it, but his hurt leg slows him down, 
as he tries to go up top, and Maleko stuns him with punches, puts him on his shoulders, and leaps off in a second rope gut buster that may actually have been a knee buster for the three count and the win. Malenko takes his belt and tells the camera only the best. He gives the fallen Armstrong a disdainful glare and makes his exit. On the replay of the finish, Heenan notes that the leaping buster was move number 627 and the cradle pin was 996. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts on this one? This is a really strong technical match, like you would assume and expect from Dean Malenko and Brad Armstrong. At this point, Malenko is fairly new here, especially literally in the role of, of champion. Right. So he has a lot to build off of from this match going forward. What you get from, which works really well, as you said, his sort of cold demeanor, it plays well in the story, his ability to lock on these really painful mission holes and slow you down. And it's the general psychology of how he does everything mm-hmm. that really works. Like I said, going to the dropping to the knee rather than going to the face is one thing like that. The only thing for me, and this is really not a major knock, is that I haven't seen a lot of later Malenko matches. I think his style really works well when he has a much more of a high-flying wrestler or a luchador. You really see the contrast between his technical style with holds and locks and slams against the aerial offense. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a weird thing because they're both really good wrestlers. I would not take that away from either of them, but they also wrestle very similarly in this match. So you don't quite get the feel like you get with other matches where, for instance, they have a strong going with these flips and kicks and everything, and then they're slowed down and stopped by Malenko. And they fight their way back up, and he might counter in some sort of hold. Mm-hmm. It's a good match. It's just I think we see better uses of him and his persona overall later. So but again, I don't, I don't want to see the matches back. It's 100% not. I guess, I don't, I guess I'm just expecting certain things for the match overall, but mm. yeah, it's still good. Okay. For me, this was excellent. It's an absolute knee work clinic by Malenko after the starting Armstrong flurry, and it had me flashing back to Luger Muda at Stargate 89, which is how abused poor Armstrong's knee was by the end of it. Oh, sure. I feel like I should dub this over with Luger selling sometime. That'd be really fun. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Speaking of selling, Armstrong's selling here is nearly perfect, with him remembering to change every single movement in all sorts of little ways to reflect the leg injury, to the extent that there's one point where he hurls Malenko to the corner and does charge after him. But the way he moves on that is, is like a hobble run. He changes his weight and everything. It's, it's amazing work. Oh, yeah. Sure. And they make it an important part of the finish with it clearly slowing his climb enough to let Malenko get to him. I'm pretty sure Malenko also punches him in the leg, too, as part of stunning him. And possibly, though it's a bit hard to tell, having Malenko target the knee with that final second rope buster. From some angles, that looks like it hits the knee directly, and from some angles, it looks like it's more of a normal gut buster. Hmm. So I couldn't quite tell on that one. I think this match is a great example of how to build a knee injury and have it matter for more than just a submission hold. Once it happens, it affects every single part of the match. This is the first cruiserweight title match on WCW pay-per-view, mm-hmm. I believe. It is, yes. And it's a great example of why it's going to become a reliable source of terrific matches for WCW's uh, remaining run. I started thinking what this match is going to be flashbacks to, and I finally figured out, and I rewatched it. It's, I believe it's Strike at 84 when we have the Denny Brown Mike Davis match. Oh, okay. The NBA World Junior Heavyweight Championship. 
where you're thinking junior heavyweight means like flipping around all over the place, but instead it's just two lighter wrestlers. Yeah, two lighter wrestlers wrestling the normal technical style. And that much was good, but yeah, it just wasn't quite what I was expecting it to be. But understandably, looking at a match 10 years before Lucha and other stuff like that became popular in the States. Understanding why it's like that. For, For me, this one actually also, I can call back to Starrcade 84, but it's to a different match. Oh, okay. That would be Tully Blanchard versus Ricky Steamboat. Mm, okay. Because of the same, like, excellence of selling sure. that Brad Armstrong is is exhibiting in this, where you remember in that match, Steamboat, like, every move, he remembered the ribs. Oh, yeah. And, like, oh, that would affect the way that he moved for everything that he did and his, his uh, strategy with how he faced Tully and everything. I think Brad Armstrong is pulling to, like, that Steamboat level oh, yeah. of, of selling in this match. Yeah, I, I do like little touches you see, like you talked about, but also when he puts Malenko's own hold on him, mm-hmm. Malenko's sort of facade of being stone-faced and not caring, you know, just being so serious, goes away a little bit when he has to sort of drag himself the rope quickly because he's in pain. He's like, I know exactly what this hold can do. I have to get out of this now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the very next show, the Grand America Bash, we'd have a title match between champion Dean Malenko and challenger Rey Mysterio. Nice. <laughs> see, that's what I'm expecting. <laughs> I, I can see that, yeah. yeah. For me, it doesn't take away from this match one bit. Sure, that's fine. But I can understand your point of view on it as well. Gotcha. Our world is about to change. Glacier is coming. <laughs> Winter is coming. This is an early Glacier promo, so we just get his wonderful knockoff Stargate and the Blood Runs Cold slogan and we don't yet get to see the Mortal Kombat Sub-Zero knockoff armor. I have no idea how WCW got away with either of those things. <laughs> My best guess is that they own, they own copyright on one of them, so they can get away with it, but other, I don't think that's enough. Yeah. The extended version of this video, also used for Glacier's return in 2000, earned Glacier John's MVP at Starcade 2000. <laughs> it did, yes. Which probably tells you just about all you need to know about Starcade 2000. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. We go back to Mean Gene, and the Hooters girls have apparently switched name tags for some reason. They do a really stupid joke about him getting all their names wrong, and blessedly move very swiftly on to the drawing. Yeah. Gene draws the remaining matchups for the second round. Public Enemy versus Savage and Flair is one of them, but Gene isn't sure that Savage will be able to compete. The remaining match is DDP and the Barbarian versus, and Gene pauses to ask the girls where they're going afterwards. To Hooters, of course. He gets their names wrong again, and one of them says that they're going to drink beer and eat chicken wings at Hooters. Yeah, that's what people go to Hooters for, sure. Yep, what else? Blessedly, he ends the segment by telling us the final team, Booty Man and Rick Steiner, which is probably the only time I'll ever use the word blessedly and any of Ed Leslie's many gimmick names in the same sentence. Yes. Is it worth asking why this is two segments, not one? I was about to ask the very same thing. <laughs> okay, good. He does the first drawing, and I thought that he was going to do the first drawing, and they go to the first match of the Lethal Lottery round two, and then come back for the second drawing. But instead, they do the first drawing, go to a match completely separate from the Lethal Lottery, and then come back and for some reason finish the drawing. And you're like, what? (laughs) Yeah. So you you should go Lethal Lottery, Cruiserweight title match, then announce the drawings, and then the matches. Right. Or just do, sure, you can do the Cruiserweight title match, 
but then do the first lethal lottery match and then come back for the next drawing. I mean, I'm not campaigning for more of Gene with the Hooters girls doing yeah. drawings in unfunny humor, but you know, whatever. In any case, Gene throws back to the commentary team and it's time to start the second round of the lethal lottery. <laughs> I just want to note here. Mm-hmm. I had a reaction to this on the show and I had the same exact reaction while I was going through doing my show notes of relief at the end of the lethal lottery first round that we were done with tag matches. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Just a great swell of good feeling for Malenko versus Armstrong. And then like a gut punch coming back to more tag matches <laughs> <laughs> as we reach our 10th match here. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So match 10 is the first match of the second round of the Lethal Lottery, and that is Dirty Dick Slater with Colonel Robert Parker teaming with Earl Robert Eaton versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan and VK Wall Street. Referee for this one is Randy Eller. I am so done with tag matches. (laughs) Yeah. Eaton, amusingly, is at the ring almost before his music starts, so we get like four seconds of it before Duggan's music starts. Wall Street bothered to put the full suit back on again. That is dedication. (laughs) Yeah, right. Duggan and Wall Street brawl, and Slater and Eaton charge in as Dusty wonderfully refers to Eaton as Bob of Earl. (laughs) (laughs) I love Dusty Rhodes. Duggan and Wall Street whip Slater and Eaton into each other. Wall Street points out Eaton getting back up, so Duggan turns and Wall Street knee-strikes Duggan to send him outside. Dusty and Heenan point out they should really just stick together. They're going to get to beat each other up in Battle Bowl anyway, which really is a commentary we could probably apply to Flair and Savage and Sullivan and Benoit as well. (laughs) For sure, yeah. Slater and Eaton double-team Wall Street and get two off a Slater Russian leg sweep. Duggan charges, and Eller stops him, so Duggan almost hurls him outside, but rethinks it. Wall Street counters a turnbuckle smash, and back body drops Eaton, who rolls out and eats a Duggan headbutt. Back in, Wall Street abdominal stretches Eaton, but Duggan refuses to cheat by giving leverage. Slater breaks, and Duggan decks both Eaton and Slater. Tags to Slater and Duggan, and Duggan insists that Wall Street get out of the ring before he's going to turn his back. (laughs) Duggan gets two with a whip into a punch. Slater whips Duggan to the ropes and goes under, but Duggan strangely bellows as he hops over, then plows into Slater and both go down. (laughs) Dusty (laughs) giggles helplessly. (laughs) Yeah, right. Tags to Wall Street and Eaton, but Wall Street's flurry of offense is quickly stopped with an Eaton eye rake. Heenan oddly says that Eaton needs to tag to a fresh Slater, even though Slater just tagged Eaton. (laughs) Flare Karma strikes Eaton, and he stumbles to Duggan's corner, but Wall Street accidentally punches Duggan instead of Eaton, twice, though the first looks pretty intentional. I think Eaton's out of position, so Wall Street just kind of goes with it. Yeah, seems like I do. Then Eaton correctly dodges the second. Duggan punches Wall Street in revenge, and Eaton rolls up Wall Street for the three count and the win, as Duggan realizes what he's done too late. Heenan notes, accurately, that it was a pretty fast count. Duggan slugs Wall Street and clotheslines him down, and chases Wall Street with his 2 by 4 but Eller gets in the way, and Wall Street flees. Thoughts on this one? All story and punching, which is a 
Interesting synopsis, I know. <laughs> that kind of summarizes Duggan's career, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, basically. That could be his biography title. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> if he used it, he owes me some money. That's all I gotta say. Yeah, it's one of those matches where nothing bad happened other than the, let's say, with the mistime with the punch thing. There's no, like, real botches or anything. It's just, there's nothing exciting with the match for me either. All four of them at this point are pretty established wrestling veterans. So they know, they know how to handle themselves, but there's not much really to do here. So it's kind of regrettable for me. Yeah. The thing that really carries the match through for the live audience is the fact that for some unexplicable reason, they love Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Obviously, we're not in agreement on that. No, no, not particularly. But I, I do get it. Like, look, people love to chant things. Yeah. And half of what he does is, okay, it's time to chant things now. So Sure, sure. <laughs> I like the idea that he, he gets his frustration, take the best of him, and a smart tag wrestler like Eaton knows to go for a pen quickly and takes advantage, but otherwise it's pretty forgettable. Nothing to me. Yeah, I thought this was okay from, again, a more angle-than-match kind of perspective, but the concept's almost exactly the same as the Flair Savage versus Anderson Guerrero match. It's just without the added interest of having a face on both teams. That's true, yeah. Since we just saw this concept with Flair and Savage, it loses any real impact. The actual action is really basic, and again, Dusty and Heenan are really totally right that Duggan and Wall Street will get to kick each other's butts in Battle Bowl anyway, Yeah. so why not just wait? Despite what I said earlier, I kind of get it more with a blood feud like Flair and Savage, that they just literally can't help but fight each other. Yeah. But with these two, it doesn't seem like they're quite that level, so it would have been more interesting if, as you kind of said with the Flair and Savage match, if they kind of hashed out their differences only to either lose and then brawl, or take out their pent-up aggression in Battle Bowl. So, this was okay, but deadened by the rest of the show. Agreed. Yeah. I did kind of like the ending spot, uh, despite the mistiming, I think, as as you said. It's, it's neat to see him, like, he loses it, and then he realizes too late what he's done. Yeah. I appreciate that that aspect to it and the way he sold that, but mm-hmm. yeah. Otherwise it's it's not enough. It's not no. enough, yeah. So, as I mentioned before, Duggan would have a uh, dark match where he wrestled Disco Inferno. Likewise, we had the same thing with uh, VK Wall Street. Against Disco Inferno as well? <laughs> I wish. Oh. Yeah, just keep being, no. They both have dark slash main event matches before the Great American Bash. Oh, okay. However, they both win, so that's something. Yeah. Who's Wall Street against? I forget. Hold on, I'll look it up. <laughs> Sorry. It, it's, it's that, it's that inconsequential. <laughs> he beats Jim Powers. Oh, okay. Yep, that is pretty inconsequential there. Our 11th match is also in the second round of the Lethal Lottery, and is the Public Enemy, that's Flyboy Rocco Rock and Johnny Grunge, versus the Nature Boy Ric Flair and the Macho Man Randy Savage. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Rock does the arm waving this time, but Grunge doesn't even bother to join in. Well, he's, he, he arrests the match, right? He's worn out. Party pooper. <laughs> <laughs> Tony name drops cameraman Jackie Crockett, who had to flee when Duggan chased Wall Street and is just now returning. <laughs> Savage's music plays, and Tony and Dusty say that he won't come back. But Heenan says Savage is too dumb to quit, so he's going to come back. <laughs> but we don't get a Savage, and Flair's music plays. Flair comes out with Elizabeth and Woman. Elizabeth starts throwing Savage's money to the crowd, 
And he hilariously says to hold his headset for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) But Savage charges down the ramp and bowls over Flair. Security and police give chase and pull Savage off of Flair, who lands a few opportune shots while security is wrestling with Savage. Of course. Savage chases again, but Flair flees, and Marcus Bagwell, Scotty Riggs, and Pittman come down to try to help Doug Dillinger talk Savage down. Flair doesn't help matters by trying to get another cheap shot, so Riggs chases him off. (laughs) Eddie Guerrero comes down to help the others drag Savage out as the crowd chants, Let him go! But Savage is extracted from the arena. Public Enemy wins by forfeit and celebrates with out-of-sync (laughs) arm-waving. Heenan is very confused by their dance and wonders if they used to be window washers. (laughs) (laughs) Thoughts on this, I guess, more segment than match? I mean, I'm glad Public Enemy won a match. And they beat two world champions, so that's something. <laughs> Jeez. That still counts. Holy crap, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a decent enough segment. I don't know that it adds much to the earlier one with Savage and Flair, other than showing that Savage is even more ticked off now. Mm-hmm. But it worked and did show this escalating. And it's probably more satisfying than just having Public Enemy come out, stand there with no one emerging, and win. So... Credit to that, at least. Sure. Flair and Savage did great, and Flair was wonderfully insufferable, sneaking in shots at Savage, even as the guards were trying to save him from Savage. So, it worked. Yeah, everyone did their part, and this is, again, I said, an angle, not a match. Yeah. Following this, Randy Savage would not be allowed in the building on the next Nitro on Monday, Mm -hmm. and the committee would decide that he'd be suspended for about a month. (laughs) Our 12th match is the final match of the second round of the Lethal Lottery, and it's Diamond Dallas Page with Huge Cigar and The Barbarian versus Booty Man with the Booty Babe, Kimberly, and The Dog Face Gremlin, Rick Steiner. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. (sighs) Finally, the last tag match of this show. (laughs) Sadly, it's also a second Booty Man match. Heenan insists that DDP's cigar is worth $500. Tony is incredulous, and Heenan asks if he's ever had a $500 cigar. Tony says no. Give me 500 bucks, and I'll go get you one, Heenan says. <laughs> Dusty advises against that. Booty Man and Paige start. Paige yells at Kimberly. She was his valet before joining Johnny B. Bad, then the Booty Man. It's true, yeah. Paige wins a slugfest with an eye rake, but Booty slugs him out through the ropes. Page tangles himself in the camera cords and Pratt falls. Yeah. Bless you, Page. <laughs> He's doing everything he can to really... Everything he can, yeah. Booty slams him into the apron, then rolls him back in. Tag to Steiner, who pretty much hits John Cena's attitude adjustment for two. Yes. Steiner goes for turnbuckle punches, but Page dumps him onto the turnbuckle to tag Barbarian. Steiner spin sells a Barbarian shoulder block, though he starts it a bit early. Barbarian hits a big boot, but Steiner dodges a second one and just flings him overhead. Ow! Mm -hmm. Steiner top rope belly to belly, then a Steiner line for two. Barbarian powerbomb Steiner for two. Barbarian front face lock, but Steiner pushes across the ring to tag Booty. But Paige distracts Patrick, and he sends Booty back out. It is odd. Oh, sorry. sorry. There's got to be a better way to say it than tag booty. (laughs) 
<laughs> I can't let that one go. Sorry. I will be honest. I, I thought of that, but then I was like, nope, I'm leaving it in. <laughs> All right, fair enough. It's oddly funny as well to hear Patrick shouting, Booty Man! In his, his very oddly loud voice at times. Yeah. Barbarian takes the opportunity to fling Steiner over the top rope, and Paige lands some kicks, then flings him inside. Barbarian batters Steiner, but Steiner dumps him on the top rope on a charge and tags Booty Man. Are you happy? Yes. Booty hits a high knee, get it? T. For one, as Paige saves. Steiner protests, and Booty shoves Barbarian to the ropes and rolls him up. But Patrick is still with Steiner. So Patrick elbowed. So Patrick elbowed. Oh <laughs> Patrick Fogel turned advance. <laughs> Should have seen ninety-seven coming, I guess. Okay, but Patrick is still with Steiner. So Page elbow drops Booty to break. Steiner chases Page off, and Barbarian pins Booty for the three count and the win. Yes, Booty Man got pinned off a pin break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Page celebrates with Barbarian, but then gives a self high five and claims he did it all on his own. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? This was a nice, uh, solid-hearted match overall. Obviously, the big selling point here is Barbarian and Rick Steiner just flinging each other around. Like, <laughs> yes. No no regard for each other. Yeah, the really good about where he dodges out of the way of a big boot and basically gives him a um, belly-to-back suplex while his leg is still up there just so quickly. Yes. It's terrifying. Yeah, there, there really is about the Steiners. If they are throwing you, they are throwing you. You have no choice in the matter. Yes. As cooperative as wrestling can be sometimes, it, it doesn't matter whether you're cooperating with the Steiner or not. Yes, absolutely. You are taking the move they want you to take. <laughs> and honestly, I, I would say probably the same thing with the Barbarian. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. The other big selling point would be DDP really nailing his character work here. Yes. It's- He's selling everything really big. He was like full Buster Keaton tying himself up in the in the ropes and everything. It was great. The cable, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, the finish is kind of weirdly underwhelming because yeah, he does an elbow drop while the guy's sort of halfway sitting up in a pin, and that gets knocks him out for at least ten seconds. That felt weird. I I thought like okay, Barbarian will do something else to him. He'll elbow drop him something, but he literally just rolls him over and pins him. Yeah, it's like wow. I mean. I know I don't like Booty Man, but that feels pretty insulting. <laughs> yeah. It's like with let's see, early Survivor Series matches where because there's like 25 eliminations in a show, people are taking like drop kicks and getting pinned for three. You know, they would never get take a pin that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's this weird middle ground between hitting a big move. Like, I don't know. I feel like DP has some sort of big move he could do to hit on him. A guy is distracted, but yes. can't think of what it's called. <laughs> Either you do that or you do the thing where you just reverse the pin again. Right. And we're going to hold him down. But somehow that blow was just enough to knock him out completely. <laughs> it fits the story really well, but yeah, it's kind of kind of underwhelming in execution. Yeah. Yeah, this was short and pretty basic, but Paige provided some good comedy and good timing for his parts. And I agree, watching Barbarian and Steiner fling each other around is great fun. Mm-hmm. But look, even if we don't count Flair Savage versus Public Enemy, which we probably shouldn't because it didn't happen. No. This is, what is it, the 10th tag match on this card? Technically, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. I have nothing interesting left to say about tag matches, so I'm just going to say let's move on. Fair enough. <laughs> Obviously, we covered what Rick Steiner is doing. He's in the tag match with Fire Nice. 
Uh, as far as Booty Man goes, he wouldn't do much of anything until he would unsuccessfully try to join the NWO, which would form later this year. Our 13th match, lucky number 13, is Jushin Thunder Liger with Sonny Ono versus Conan for Conan's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Eller. Oh, thank goodness we're done with tag matches. <laughs> After winning the U.S. title off of One Man Gang earlier in the year, they would run this, not really a storyline, but just sort of a booking, I guess, for Conan, where he'd face international talents for the U.S. title. Uh, so you'd have him and Eddie Guerrero on one show, but then you'd also have someone pretending to be international talent, that being Mr. JL. <laughs> yes, true. Who, of course, is Jerry Lynn. Yeah. They're sort of using the idea that Conan's an international star from Mexico to have by other national stars confusingly around the United States title. I was going to say, that's a little bit weird. <laughs> but that's basically what they do. Yeah, all his matches seem to make international talent sort of play off of that. <laughs> Dusty goes off to try to find out what's going on with Flair and Savage, so Mike Tanay comes in to replace him and to give us someone at the table who will know what any of these guys' moves are called. <laughs> <laughs> Liger has an awesome black-bordered version of his usual cape and mask. It looks really cool. Oh, it's very nice, yeah. Conan comes out with a mask made of straps, a blue and white, I don't know, tunic, and a Mexico baseball cap. Yes. The combination looks a tad strange. Yeah, I think Heenan sells it the best. Yeah, Heenan jokes that Conan should put a light in his closet and he'd be able to find clothes that matched. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Someone, it sounds like Mongo McMichael, bellows, Sonny, you'd better bring that belt home, baby. I Oh, yeah, I heard that. I can't remember who said that. I'm pretty sure it's Mongo. I'm not sure why he cares whether Sonny brings the belt home to Japan with him, but he, he seems to. He just really sold the story, I guess. Conan's haircut. Oh, yes. Is unusual. He's mostly bald, mm-hmm. but with the remaining hair formed into Ks at one side in the back and a backwards K on the other side. So, three Ks. I'm sure you can see how that might be a tad unfortunate. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought the backwards K was him trying to avoid accidentally endorsing one of the most notorious hate groups in the United States, <laughs> but it may actually be a baseball reference. So, in baseball, K is used for strikes in baseball scoring. Yes. And a backwards K is used for a strikeout looking, which I think means if the batter doesn't swing at the third strike. So, like, you just looked at it, but I might right. be wrong on that. They will also, I will tell you from my limited knowledge of baseball, if they're tracking someone getting a no-hitter, they will put the Ks out there, and they'll always turn the third one to avoid that, the way it looks. That's what I'd heard, yeah. Some people have said one thing on that, and some people said another, and I, I obviously, I, I don't watch baseball, so I really didn't know <laughs> to verify, but... Yeah, there, I, there was one of the few games I've been to, the guy who was pitching got a no-hitter, he got like 10 in a row, it was pretty amazing. And they'll be watching as they put the thing up, and they typically turn the third one that way. I like to think that's why they did that. Yeah, probably, probably. Anyway, dang it, Conan, get a haircut that doesn't make me have to do research. Yes. Conan almost gets two with an arching pin right off the bat, then a one count. Rapid counter sequence, intermixed with flips, and they pose at each other to applause. Heenan thinks that Conan's hair is advertising for Kmart. <laughs> <laughs> Tanae tries to explain, and Heenan repeatedly says he doesn't care. <laughs> yes. I love it. Tanae finally gets out that Conan is playing Conan the Rapper on a TV show, apparently adapted from a stage play. 
Seriously. Yeah. It's like a Medea thing, I guess. Liger flipping Sentin, and Conan rolls out. Ono lands a couple very nice kicks, but Conan sells the first, but then no-sells the second. People really shouldn't no-sell Ono's kicks. They're great. Yeah. He's he's like a legit karate champion, as I recall. Yeah. Meanwhile, these same people will sell Eric Bischoff kicks, I guess because he's their boss. Ono lures him into a Liger baseball slide, and Liger mostly misses a dive. Heenan says he should sharpen his mask horns and shish kebab Conan. <laughs> I think that might be a DQ. <laughs> Maybe. Although Kevin Sullivan hurling the chair at people wasn't earlier, so. That's true, yeah. Back in, Liger Brainbuster earns two and a half as Tanae brings up the Liger anime. The theme song to that was his entrance music in Japan, by the way. Nice. I wish WCW had used it. It'd be a rights nightmare, but that never stopped them before, Arachnaman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Liger and Conan trade holds. Cross arm breakers from both, a Conan STF, and a Liger surfboard variant, camel clutch, and bow and arrow. Tanae mentions that Liger idolizes Flair, and you can hear Tony's respect for Liger drop. <laughs> it's, it's Really? <laughs> it's, it's great. Conan kicks free, and Liger lands rapid punches, and Heenan jokes that he knocked a K off Conan's head. It'd be an improvement. It would. Rapid strike exchange. Somersault kick by Liger, and he hits a superplex and a swan dive splash? It looked like he was going for a headbutt, but went too far or something. Yeah, I'm not sure on that one. It gets two and nine-tenths. Liger dropkick sends Conan out, and he dives after, but Conan dropkicks his knee. Liger flips over a suplex back in and hits a belly-to-back. Tony and Heenan point out that he's taking time to follow up, showing off a bit. Great Liger Fisherman's Buster gets two and a half. Mm -hmm. Conan reverses a whip. Liger tries to go up and over, but Conan catches his legs and whips him to the mat for two and nine-tenths. Terrific kickout timing on that one. Oh, yeah. Conan tries his power drop finisher, but Liger slips free and gets a couple roll-ups for two. Liger Bomb gets two and a half, and the commentators point out he couldn't lock on the pin fully with Conan's size. Conan gets his boots up on a Liger dive, and he hits the power drop for the three count and the win. Conan celebrates with his belt as we get some replays, and Mike Tanay makes his exit after shilling the hotline. 1-900-909-9900. It's really weird to hear someone other than Mean Gene say that number. I was thinking the same thing, especially because he has so many segments in this show. Yeah. Thoughts on this one? I thought it was good. It was a really strong competitive match. They told a good story. One thing they, they cover in commentary well is that you're seeing more legit holds, like arm, like the arm bars and the FTFs, sort of integrating that back into wrestling, away from just punches and kicks and you know drop kicks and the like. It's interesting because I, I so associate Liger with challenging for you know, the light heavyweight title, which he was champion of once, the cruiserweight title, or whatever variations of the same name you'd have for that belt in the countries. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting seeing him challenge for the U.S. title. Yeah. I almost wondered that regard if that's why he's working this more technical strike-based match versus a high-flying match. Obviously, to be fair, he's not, you know, where mysterious as far as high-flying goes, but he definitely seems more focused on submissions and grappling, I guess, in this one than other matches. I could see that, yeah. I mean, and it, it's also, I think, that, if I recall correctly, kind of tends to be Conan's style to some extent as well. Yeah. 
he's doing the luchador thing to some extent, but he's not doing it as with as much flipping as you normally get and, and as many high flying moves generally from Conan. Right. He is the bigger luchador. Yeah, him on the parka, basically, yeah. And I can see Liger doing the same thing to kind of like work with his style very well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of little things throughout the match that are really good. I'd like to talk about how the fact he either can't or doesn't hook the arms on the powerbomb. Mm-hmm. I like that they're not saying one way or the other whether he tried to and couldn't or just actually didn't try to. Right. And you also have, just the, to point out, he'll hit a move and then pause for a second, then go for a pen sometimes, rather than going right into it. Right. Given the coward people, it's not surprising this one goes so well. I think the worst thing you see is that one bit where he slips out of the hole briefly, but quickly recovers and does roll up Conan. Mm-hmm. And even that's like, that's so minor. Yeah, I mean, you see that in like any match, any time, with it not being quite maintaining connection on some of those roll-ups. Yeah. And they cover it really fast. Absolutely. Terrific match between these two. They moved quickly, but did some really complex work as well. A good mix of mat wrestling, rapid striking, creative holds, aerial work, and some monster slams. They worked really well together, and the late match featured a lot of very, very tight near falls that made it really exciting. It felt like it could go either way at any moment. Mm -hmm. Excellent timing. The match built constantly, and it felt like each was ultimately pulling out all the stops against the other. And they did a good job of showing that they'd studied each other as well, countering big moves and holds alike quite nicely. Both were well prepared, but Liger was perhaps overconfident, and a few little slip-ups gave Conan an opening to get the win. So a good match with a good story to it, and really easy to get into. Mm-hmm. Kind of a rarity on this card, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I think the only thing missing for me here is that, because as far as I could see, there's no build-up to this match... There's not like, you know, Sonny Ono cutting a promo on Conan and, you know. Right. Because none of that, they have to build the story entirely through their actions in the ring. And they do a good job with that. But because there's no personality there or tension, there's a slight thing that's missing. But otherwise, it's a really good match. It's a match that's excellent, but it is very much about the action in the ring and not about anything else that might be going on. There's nothing else beyond it. Yeah. Like you said, that would add some extra tension or extra emotion to it. It's all about... Just these two guys are facing off for a title. And that that can be fine, but you definitely notice when there's not a further storyline. Yeah, exactly. Though it does stand in weird contrast, a couple of matches on this show we talked about, they get by and having a story, but actually it's not that great. <laughs> right. This is the, the flip side, yeah. You're kind of like, can can you guys talk to each other? And like, you guys do story really well. Can you show these guys that? And you guys do action really well. Can you show these guys that? <laughs> yeah, because I totally understand that there's not going to be a promo battle, you know, Brock Austin style, between Liger and Conan for obvious reasons. Though I'd actually love if they tried anyway. That would be great, yeah. But you have Ono there, that's kind of what he's there for, other than kicking people. Mm-hmm. So imagine they added a little extra spice to this, that would have been really, really great. Liger doesn't appear again for a little while, I think he makes a couple appearances, but obviously his most notable next appearance, he is until... Uh, this dark hit coming up 96 right and actually if i recall there's an explanation why yes he has a quite serious brain tumor as i recall he does yeah that he has brain surgery yeah and that is back wrestling in like a month <laughs> yeah <laughs> we cut to mean gene who brings in rick flair with woman miss elizabeth and art anderson and I just realized that Woman and Miss Elizabeth also have the Double Dragon color scheme tonight. Oh, yeah. 
Woman rubs Jean's neck, but he says he's been with the Hooters girls. Kay? Huh. Flair says the nut, Randy Savage, got locked up by the police, and he goes in for medical evaluation tomorrow. Savage is gone because he's one flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> Gene says the crowd may not agree with him, but Flair says the crowd doesn't have the right to disagree with him. Oh, is that how it works? Yeah. Okay. Flair kisses Elizabeth's hand and tells Savage to watch from lockup. He says they're going to have a pajama lingerie party, and Macho can't do anything about it. But he invites Gene. <laughs> Flair turns to the subject of Mongo McMichael, and says that McMichael was an all-pro and a Super Bowl champ, but now McMichael had the nerve to tell Flair to back off, but Flair can't get McMichael's wife to stop following him. Mongo comes out and says, You've been writing them checks on my person. Well, Mongo can cash a few on you, my friend. <laughs> That's an interesting metaphor. Truly one of the great debaters, Mongo McMichael. Yeah. Right up there with Lincoln Douglas. <laughs> exactly. Flair says he didn't have the Enforcer with him last week, while Arn gives a wonderfully confident smile. Flair challenges Mongo to a tag match, and rattles off a lot of Mongo's former teammates as proposed partners for Mongo. Mongo clarifies that he means Mongo can get anyone he wants, and Flair confirms. Mongo brings out Kevin Green of the Carolina Panthers. Flair says he said retired player, but Gene notes he did no such thing. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> he did not. Interesting side note, um, the Carolina Panthers actually uh, did their training and, and preparation for each season at Wofford College. Oh, neat. Yeah. Which, for listeners, I guess I should clarify, is where I went to school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's neat regardless, but yes. Green charges Flair, and Flair and Arn retreat. Green has a very strange, super thin ponytail. Yeah. Mongo and Green accept the match. Green says he's ready to rock and roll, and Flair and Arn better bring their mouthpieces. Arn removes his shirt in as serious and threatening a manner as one possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> but security gets in between the teams and gets Flair and Arn to leave. The football players do an elaborate high five as Dusty rejoins the commentary team, and we go back to the ring for Battle Bowl. Uh, any thoughts on this segment overall? It's an interesting choice to put Mongo and Flair in a, as I joked about having a, a you know, Rock Austin style face-off between Conan and Liger, we get that with Mongo and Flair. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it even matched, but Mongo kind of gets by, at least here, in a short burst, through with the bluster, I would say. Mm -hmm. He's so animated and so intense, you kind of ignore, for the most part, how weird some of the expressions he says are. I think Mongo generally, in his career... He gets the energy of promos correct. Yes. But he rarely gets the statements of promos correct. <laughs> yes, that's fair. <laughs> this was, I think, mostly about the future, but it did provide a pretty effective wrap-up to the Flair-Savage stuff tonight, and it obviously ups the tension between Flair and Mongo quite effectively as well. I think my only thing with this is, like I said, it's building up the next show, which you could easily do on Nitro, where you're like six other shows you have running. Yeah, that's, I think, my feeling on it as well. It's like, this is fine, but there's no reason that you couldn't have done this on Nitro. Yeah. You did not have to have Mongo pop onto the show for this, or Kevin Green pop onto the show for this, really. Yeah. I do like how Flair and Arn build up Kevin Green right away, just like backing off really fast from him. Mm -hmm. And to his credit, he really has a ton of energy and just does his part really nicely. Oh, yeah. He, he charges in there like high energy, like he's 
rushing a line, basically. Basically, yeah. I do, again, have to state, I really hope that Mongo and Deborah both said that they were okay with the direction of this angle, because it can be really uncomfortable, and obviously Mongo and Deborah's marriage does not end up that well later on, but mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, like, during this point, they're married. So, right. I, I really hope that everyone consented fully to this angle before they decided the direction of it, because it could be really uncomfortable. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Our 14th match. Oh, man. Yeah. Is Battle Bowl. The referee for this match is Nick Patrick. This year's Battle Bowl is an eight-man battle royal. You can be eliminated by being thrown over the top rope to the floor, or by pinfall. There's no mention of submissions. The last man remaining wins and becomes Lord of the Ring, and gets a world title match in the future. So our competitors come out to the ring, and they are, in order, Scott Flash Norton of Fire and Ice, Ice Train, who is all smiles, of Fire and Ice, Dirty Dick Slater with Colonel Robert Parker, Earl Robert Eaton, I just now realized that the Colonel and the Earl both had the same first name. That's true. (laughs) Flyboy Rocco Rock of Public Enemy, Johnny Grunge of Public Enemy, Diamond Dallas Page, and The Barbarian of The Faces of Fear. Did anyone expect it would be these men in the final? Tony asks. Heenan claims he did, and Tony rapidly shoots that down. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Nick Patrick is in the ring because pinfalls are legal, but he appears to be the only referee. Okay, this is a big slow brawl, so I'm just going to try and call out some highlights. Sure. Page and Barbarian start out working together better than the actual tag teams. They're, like, actually teaming up while the others are separating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rock tries to splash Barbarian, but Barbarian catches him. Slater almost eliminates Page, but he lands on the apron. Heenan asks Dusty a strategy in a battle royal, and Dusty says he'd hit Heenan with the big elbow, pin him, and throw him out. I'm, I'm not sure he'd have to do both of those things. He was covering his bases. I guess so. Page finally betrays Barbarian with a forearm, but Barbarian no-sells, and Page begs for mercy. (laughs) Barbarian big-boots him over the top and to the floor, but Patrick doesn't see it, so Page rolls back in. Now see, if they had another ref outside like in those other battle bowls, they'd catch stuff like that. Yeah. As Barbarian tries to throw Eaton out, Dusty mistakenly says that Eaton and Barbarian were partners earlier in the night. <laughs> Good to know you're paying attention, Dusty. I mean, DDP and Eaton, they're, they're like twins, you know. <laughs> Ice Train hits a really nice couple of slams on Slater and Rock. WCW tries the split screen again, and it's still bad. Oh, yeah. Dusty describes it as like two TV screens inserted in the middle of your big old TV screen, and says that's progress. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, let's go with that. Grunge tries a pin on Ice Train, but he kicks out easily. Rock charges at Barbarian, and Barbarian dumps him out, finally giving us elimination number one. Eaton holds Norton for an attempted Slater boot shot, but Norton ducks and out goes Eaton for elimination two. Heenan jokes that Slater is the real booty man. (laughs) That, I will admit, got me chuckling pretty good. That's a good one, yeah. Parker smacks Eaton with his hat, so Eaton decks him. Slater is either dumped out or eliminates himself to save his manager. I'm not sure because the camera didn't catch it. Yeah. And he goes after Eaton with a booted fist. Elimination three. 
Slater tries to get back in, but Patrick stops him. But Slater nails Norton with the boot, and Paige dumps Norton out. Elimination number four. Ice Train hits great power slams on Paige, Barbarian, and Grunge in rapid sequence. Quite smooth on all of those, I thought. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Barbarian and Train double big boot Grunge and shake hands, but then Train clotheslines Barbarian. That is the opposite of how I thought that would go. (laughs) Yeah, right. Paige takes that opportunity to Diamond Cutter Barbarian, then Ice Train, then Grunge. That gets Paige a three-count on Grunge for Elimination 5. He then crawls over and pins Train for Elimination 6. He goes for the trifecta and tries pinning Barbarian, but Barbarian kicks out at 2. Clearly only because Paige hit him first and pinned him last, which gave him time to recover. Exactly. The commentators, especially Dusty and Heenan, majorly put over Paige and the Diamond Cutter for that moment. Dusty says it was almost the most amazing thing he's ever seen, and Heenan says, no, it just was. <laughs> yeah, and then he qu- quickly, he quickly agrees. Yeah, Dusty quickly agrees. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Down to Paige and Barbarian. Paige protests Patrick's count and gets in his face, shoving him, but Patrick shoves back and Paige goes butt over tea kettle. <laughs> Barbarian catches a Paige kick, and Paige tries his spinning lariat, but Barbarian ducks and clotheslines him down for two. It's a good way of showing Barbarian was learning about his partner. Yeah, absolutely. Paige back elbows Barbarian on a charge and pins him for two with his feet on the ropes. Barbarian dodges a corner charge and rolls him up for two. Barbarian tilt a world pile driver for two and a half, and he puts on a sleeper hold, but Paige mule kicks him in the balls. <laughs> Tony calls it a reflex to Dusty's amusement. Heenan says his knee, quote, double cramped. Yeah. <laughs> a line dancing move, yeah. Barbarian powerbomb for two and three quarters. Barbarian top rope headbutt, but Paige rolls out of the way and hits the diamond cutter. Paige gets the three count and the win and becomes Lord of the Ring. The commentators sell the enormity of Paige's victory. Weeks ago, he wasn't even in the company, but now he's back and he won a major tournament over some of WCW's best. And Booty Man. I was waiting for who was last in that one. <laughs> I wrote that you're going to say Public Enemy, so I appreciate that. <laughs> no, they did, all, they did all right. Okay. Well, I mean, Rock or Rock did all right. Johnny Grunge succeeded at existing, basically, tonight. I, I, will, give, I will give Johnny Grunge one point for Battle Bowl. Okay. When Barbarian's throwing Rock or Rock out, you can see Johnny Grunge is trying to get in the way to stop it. Okay. And he dives towards him, and you can see he's so disappointed he couldn't get there in time. Okay. Yeah, I'll, give him, I'll give him that. But otherwise, yeah, he got hit in the head a lot with the chair. All right, thoughts on Battle Bowl? Uh, it's definitely kind of there for a lot of it. I guess there's supposed to be drama because we've seen these people go through way too many matches Yeah, to get here. And you're like, we well, see the end of their journey and all, but it's uh, not that exciting, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's funny because I remember we originally watched, I was thinking it's a long time before you get any pinfalls or eliminations. So I was actually watching the clock and then I realized it's only like about three and a half minutes. I was like, oh, it just feels like 10 minutes i guess yeah there's just some odd stuff in there like before he's eliminated uh rock or rock goes to the outside which i'm going to mention how dangerous that is given that's a battle royal yeah which is weird first off then he jumps at barbarian who catches them and then doesn't like do anything right yeah it, nothing really comes of it yeah he kind of sets them down i'm like okay <laughs> it's, i don't know whether that was like a miscue thing like rock or rock that'd be a great idea to do a spot and then barbarian's like but i'm both three out later and then 
just does nothing. I don't know what happened. <laughs> it's a little weird. Yeah, true. Obviously, the big thing here is DDP. Yes. His big moment of being the first person to successfully use pinfall, which for some reason was added to this match, with almost no buildup at all. I feel like it gets mentioned at least once on commentary before it actually happens, but I'm not honestly confident on that. Right. I mean, this is the same company where they weirdly turned down the volume on the ring after all the time, so maybe he did say it and it just didn't come through in the audience. Yeah. It's possible. But it's one of those things where if, if you didn't have this moment and that sort of late game extra match basically have, it'd be pretty underwhelming and forgettable Battle Royal in general. As it is, it at least makes up for the whole thing a bit. It goes somewhere big, but otherwise, yeah, it's not until that point, it's not very exciting. I, I would agree. I would say this is pretty deadly dull for about the first half, mm-hmm. but then it starts to heat up once you start getting to the eliminations. A lot of people start getting eliminated very quickly, mm-hmm. and then the last third, I would say, is legitimately good. Mm-hmm. We get a few very nice moments in Ice Train's Power Slam sequence, and then Paige's series of diamond cutters, which is definitely the coolest thing on the show. Yes. And a amazing way to demonstrate the power of the diamond cutter. And then Barbarian and Paige basically have a little singles match here. It's kind of like the ending moments of a longer singles match, at least. Yeah. And that's quite nice. Lots of near falls, a great escalation, and it does a ton to establish the perseverance, as the commentators will note, that's later going to be associated with the eventual face version of Diamond Dallas Page. Even though he's a heel on this show, you're really starting to see the tools that he'll use when he switches to babyface. Yeah. And the, the way that you can take that character and make him admirable. So this is a major night for Paige, and his performance here is star-making. It's just a weird match to do it in. Yeah. In total, I think this ended up actually good for me, but just be warned, it has a really slow start. Yeah. The only thing I would say with the Dunkirk thing, I'm kind of torn on this. So on one hand, it's kind of a shame there's no previous use of the Diamond Cutter in a match in Battle Bowl. Yeah. Like having win a match, they go, oh, if he hits this, he can you know beat people. But at the same time, I guess you could argue that him not doing it at all during that the previous two matches makes sense because he's keeping that as, as his ace in the hole, essentially. Yeah, it's the thing he's never shown Barbarian. Yeah, so I can kind of accept from that point of view, but yeah, it'd be nice if they build up the move, I think. So when he hits it, it's like, oh, it's that move we know works really well, it took out you know, so-and-so. Yeah, I, I, I'm i I'm torn on it, too. I can see it that way, but I can also see it as like, man, it like it really makes it a shocking moment mm-hmm. when it's suddenly like, wow, this move just took out two guys in a row and nearly took out a third one that just like immediately gets it over. Like, I don't think it would, I don't know. Would it cheapen it if he had used it to win an earlier match? It's hard to say on that. I feel like I really like how they used it on this, but I can also see the the reverse argument. I don't think it necessarily is bad one way or the other, but I kind of like it that they just went ahead and said, no, we're only going to do it for this match. Mm-hmm. Just myself. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure how I feel on that one. I can see both sides of it. Yeah, absolutely. The very next night, Nitro DP would win a singles match against Brad Armstrong, but then he would he interrupted celebrating in the ring this promo with me and Gene coming out to let him know that he's having his title match taken away from him due to one of his feet hitting the floor earlier in the Battle Bowl match last night, and they played a replay of it. Yes. 
I'm trying to figure out if like, they didn't know about the Shawn Michaels whole thing, 1995 Royal Rumble bit with this, the one foot touch on the floor thing. I wonder if, if they're just not aware of that, which is possible. Or this is like a re- response thing where they're saying, well, the one foot thing still counts as being eliminated. Like, we're, you know, we're. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, these companies are so petty. I could see that. I haven't found you know, Eric Bischoff saying that or when, confirming that, so I don't know. Yeah. Obviously, the logical conclusion is okay, so. DP was technically eliminated, but we can't take the ring away from him, even though I think you can. If he lost, you can kick it away from him. Yeah, you pro- probably. Although you might be worried about a diamond cutter in the near future if you did it, but... Right. <laughs> so a lot of people tell you, okay, so the guy who won it has his win taken away from him. Obviously, number two guy, Barbarian, is now winning the title shot. Nope. <laughs> nope. The winner of the title shot is Lex Luger. <laughs> How? Why? <laughs> Shut up. That's why. Seriously, there's no explanation. I mean, he just says the title shot's going to Lex Luger. Yep. And that's it. So, I'm, I'm torn on this. And I, I will say, like, okay, I'm not, I'm not torn on the execution. The execution is stupid. Yeah. But I kind of recognize the position that they kind of got themselves into here. They want to use Battle Bowl to build up DDP as a new performer. Yeah. Well, not new performer, but, like, kick him into high gear. Yeah, they're rebranding in this sense, yeah. You know, obviously, they, they, they do that actually quite well there. But their current world champion is also a guy that they're really trying to build up and make sure irons himself out as, like, a, a high-end performer for them. Yeah. So, really, they've gotten themselves in a situation here, because of the way they've done this, where their choice, if they let him go forward with the title match, is either Diamond Dallas Page... Diamond Cutter is the Giant, which would be an awesome moment, Yes, but kind of hurts the Giant a lot at a kind of vulnerable moment in his career. Yeah. Or uh, the Giant chokeslams Page and kills his momentum dead. Mm-hmm. They almost have to find a way around having this match, because you also can't have the match and have neither of those things happen. Mm-hmm. At the very least, that would be drastically unsatisfying. Right. So the solution they come up with is not good. Yeah. But I recognize the reason they had to come up with a solution. Mm. <laughs> I guess I would put it that way. Yeah. It gives Paige time to grow. It gives him the moment that he needed. And it does actually give him a grievance that he can run on for the next few months. Sure. And then when he's ready to turn face and strap a rocket to himself, he is not hurt Yeah. by that at all, I don't think. So... I think it, it ends up working out, but it kind of ends up working out despite them instead of yeah. because of them. <laughs> it's one of the cases where you don't necessarily know how you to do it better. It's not like, oh, just do this and it's fine. Right. But at the same time, you definitely know they did it wrong. I think the only thing you could have done is, and, and obviously this is a pre-planning thing, not a post-correction thing, is not have Battle be for a world title shot. Mm-hmm. If it's just for the Lord of the Ring title, you can just go with it. Yeah, sure. But the fact that he's going to end up potentially facing the Giant for the world title, and you can't have either result happen, or the guy on the losing end loses a bunch of momentum at a critical point, that's what makes it a problem. So if you'd done it as Battle Bowls, just some other interesting opportunity uh, down the line, I I could see that doing it, or just do it as, it's for Lord of the Ring title and a million dollars. Yeah. You know, you have him gunning to get back his lotto money. <laughs> Bingo, bingo. sorry. It was bingo, right? Yeah, it was bingo, yeah. They make a big point throughout the show that the Lord of the Rings is this prestigious title you, you hold for an entire year 
presumably because they were playing December 97 to have a battle bowl with the same thing again, which yeah. thankfully they didn't. Also, thankfully, DDP apparently immediately gets his ring rather than having to wait for a year. That's also true, yeah. <laughs> so they build up this being this thing you want to win just on its own, and oh yeah, you get a title shot. So this weird that the title shot thing just clearly goes away instantly. Mm-hmm. The award for winning Battle Bowl this time was being declared WCW's Lord of the Ring. At least the award that sticks, as we just thought, <laughs> just said. Correct. So we thought we'd take a stab at deciding our own WCW cast of the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go for the nine members of the Fellowship, plus uh, Saruman, Elrond, and of course Gollum. Yes. The restriction here is that you have to use WCW employees from 1996. They don't have to be on this show, mm-hmm. but they do have to be in WCW at some point in 1996. And I, I will say, I have been looking forward to this for this entire recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm so curious if ours are going to be really similar or totally different. There's got to be some overlap, but I feel like there's a couple points where we're going to be different. When there's ways you can approach this, too. I'm, I'm curious if we'll have the same reasoning that we that we approach this by or not. Sure. Do you want to go first or you want me to go first? I can go first if you want. Sure. Go go for it. Okay, so the way I'm approaching this is I'm approaching it from a narrative sense. Mm-hmm. So I'm basing it on the storyline we'll get into a little bit, which involves the NWO. <laughs> so with that in mind, Saruman is, of course, Hulk Hogan. Okay. Because he's the guy trying to take it. So that means, by default... The person that is protecting the one ring, which case is the world title, is the giant. Oh, okay. Yeah, my Frodo is the giant. So the giant, <laughs> that is oh giant. my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that means that Samwise is, of course, Jimmy Hart. Okay. Because this is loyal companion. That That is true. That is yeah. true. I remember the scene in The Lord of the Rings where uh, Sam dons his uh, jacket with Frodo's face on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. It's funny, the one I the most on is Nymeria and Pippin. But once I figure out the, the narrative I'm going with here, I have to make it make sense. As funny as I can make something be. Okay. So sticking with that theme, if, Fro- if Giant Frodo and, you know, King Dungeon of Doom, Miriam Pippin had to be Barbarian and Ming, respectively. Okay. Yeah. Two also massive dudes to play uh-huh. the Hobbits. Yep, I, I like it. Yeah, my, my, my film looks a little different. <laughs> going with Elrond. So Elrond, in this case, is someone who is an important authority. It helps guide them on the journey, but ultimately doesn't take part in the adventure. Mm-hmm. So I have, El- my Elrond is J.J. Dillon. Oh, okay. The boss there. Yep. So getting into the actual fellowship, I feel like this is probably where ours, ours sync up pretty well. Yeah, we'll see. My Aragorn is Sting. That That's probably a duh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I went back and forth on Legolas a bit. Uh, so the idea that he's the competent but fairly emotionless you'd say warrior as an elf oh i hope i know where you're going with this so i had two two picks here i went with i think is a safer pick so my legolas is d malenko oh okay what was your secondary just to guess chris benwell oh okay i i actually i thought you were heading towards alex Wright. oh no the the acrobatics right <laughs> no i meant the, the yeah like the, the the strong emotionless warrior that goes on the journey i can see that so, given his stature as a well-known legendary figure, my Gandalf is, of course, Ric Flair. Okay. Given his strong, aggressive nature and his beard, my Gimli is Randy Savage. Okay, I'll get that. 
Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so sticking with the theme and connecting people, the strong warrior who you feel like you should trust, but you can't really trust because he's got ulterior motive, is Lex Luger as Boromir. I, yep, okay. And of course, Gollum being the sort of third party that obviously wants the title, but helps one that isn't really super helpful because his own, again, has his own motives. My Gollum is Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> All right. All right, this is going to be fascinating. Okay. Because indeed, we do match up on some of these, but we don't match up on some of these as well. I figured that. And I think you're going to be very interested in the points where we don't match up. Okay. <laughs> But I'm going to go down my list. Okay. So I'll start with Aragorn, which, as you've likely figured out, since I joked about it on the last episode, is Sting. Of course. He's WCW's greatest hero. He's the only one capable of leading them against the greatest threat they'll ever face. And heck, 1997 is pretty much Lord of the Ring, Return of the Sting. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it works. Okay. Um, and I should also mention that I, too, was actually guided by the NWO storyline. Oh, good. <laughs> I was curious how you did that one. I will note, I could also see Sting as Gandalf, mm. because he has a kind of disappearance and transformed return thing going True. on. True, yeah. But I'm going to use someone else for that. Okay, fair enough. My Legolas is Scott Steiner. Okay. Because my Gimli is Rick Steiner. Gotcha. And like Legolas and Gimli, these two team up constantly, have one that's slightly more agile and one that's more brawny and have a bit of a friendly rivalry, wanting to see who's the better fighter. Okay. Though Legolas and Gimli don't directly fight like the Steiners do. True. My Boromir, just like you, I picked Lex Luger. Mm -hmm. Luger's 96 story is perfect for Boromir. He's a skilled warrior who's struggling with the temptations of power versus his urge to do good and be loyal to his friends. Mm -hmm. And later on, his momentary betrayal of a friend, expressing his belief that Sting is working with the NWO, is going to lead to WCW suffering a major defeat to the NWO and indirectly to the splintering of WCW factions, much like Boromir's role in Lord of the Rings. That's true, yeah. When he tries to take the ring. Yeah, yeah I gotcha. Yep. My Gandalf, this one's a little bit weird, but... Okay. It's Diamond Dallas Page. Okay. And I'll explain here. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm curious. Go ahead. The morality of the character obviously does not fit at this point. No. But his story in 1996 is that he disappears in the aftermath of a harsh conflict, but returns more powerful than ever, and quickly arises to prominence among those facing the harshest threat the WCW will ever face, using his unstoppable power, the Diamond Cutter. Okay. So we've got Gandalf falling along with the Balrog and disappearing from the story for a while, and then returning in his Gandalf the White form, and filled with more power than he's ever had. <laughs> and DDP doing the same thing. You realize who, what that makes your ball wrong then, right? Uh, that would probably be Booty Man, right? Yes, correct. <laughs> not, not the same drama level. And m much like the ball rock, he also smells of sulfur. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Also, I do have to say, the point later where DDP will fake joining the NWO and then beat them up mm -hmm. kind of also makes him the inspirational leader type of character. Yeah, sure. Now, here's where we diverge heavily. Okay. You may notice in the story, there are four hobbits. Yes. You may notice that there's another group in wrestling that also has the number four. <laughs> uh-huh, interesting. So my Frodo is Ric Flair. <laughs> interesting. 
Flair is the focal member of a four-man group, and though he's a clear villain at this point in 1996, his story a little bit later becomes one of conflict between doing right and achieving power, much like Frodo's temptation over using the ring. Mm -hmm. You can even look at the eventual collapse of the NWO, at least before its short-lived NWO 2000 resurrection, as a direct result of Ric Flair's defeat of Hulk Hogan at Uncensored 1999, which is a match in which Flair bows to the temptation of power, much like Frodo started to fall to the ring before Gollum, you know, chewed his finger off. Correct. (laughs) Okay. That, of course, makes my Sam, Flair's best friend and most loyal friend, Arn Anderson. Yeah, I that coming. Also, like Sam, he's pretty darn tough. Sure. My Pippin is Brian Pillman. Okay. He's the craziest of the horsemen and the most likely to get the group in trouble or embroiled in conflict. Uh So, seems kind of fitting. Sure. My Mary is Dean Malenko. Okay. I went a bit into horseman future here, but Malenko seems fitting for one of the hobbits that proves himself in battle later in the story. Especially since we saw him focusing on the knee tonight, and Mary's biggest moment in The Lord of the Rings may be scoring a strike to the knee of the Witch King of Angmar mm-hmm. uh, at a critical moment to help Eowyn slay him. I should interject for a moment. I didn't list Eowyn uh, largely because WCW has a very small selection of women wrestlers. I guess Medusa by default? Basically Medusa by default, yeah. Who would make a perfectly fine one? Sure. Saruman, I'm going to agree with you. It is Hulk Hogan. Yes. He's the former hero and leader that's corrupted by a greed for power and respect, and he turns into one of WCW's primary antagonists. I will note, I also thought of Eric Bischoff for this, as Mm -hmm. he has a little bit more of the authority figure angle. Yeah. And a similar story. But I feel like Hogan fits the bill a little bit better overall, since uh, Saruman is actually kind of a a fighter in the lead-up to Lord of the Rings. Maybe you could argue that Eric Bischoff is Sauron, not Saruman. (laughs) True. I, I also will say, though, if you did take Bischoff for this, then Hogan obviously becomes the Witch King of Angmar. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Actually. For Elrond, like you, I saw his role is kind of providing moral support and arguing for the need to take on the threat, but not necessarily um, directly participating in the battle. Mm-hmm. So for that role, I chose Tony Schiavone. I figured you were going that way, yeah. After the NWO angle, he really... Gets a lot of the, no, WCW's got to stick together. They've got to do everything they can against the NWO thing in his commentary a lot. For sure, yeah. I don't think he ever goes to the extent of actually organizing the resistance, but close enough. Sure. And for Gollum, yes, I agree, it is Kevin Sullivan, definitely. <laughs> He's a short, ranting lunatic who's well acquainted with the call of evil and greed for power that now threatens to corrupt WCW. He also spends much of 1996 varying between alliance and enmity with the horsemen, who are my hobbits, so it totally fits. <laughs> yeah, I see that. As, as a side note, I'm really sad that Tom Zenk wasn't around in 1996 WCW, though, because he and Pillman would have been a perfect Marion Pippin. Yeah. I was, I was really curious if you were going to work in uh, Mongo into that, but you put Pillman instead. I almost put Mongo in the Pillman spot as, as Pippin, because he ha- kind of fills the same role in the current horseman of the, the craziest one that gets them in trouble. Mm-hmm. But Pillman just seemed... I could technically still work with him since he was in 1996, so I decided to do so. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I'll see if I have time to Photoshop some of this together for you. That was fun. That was, yes. <laughs> oh, God. I'm just picturing Megan the Barbarian trying to play Hobbits right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> get, get down on your knees. <laughs> well, the fact that they have, they have to constantly protect uh, Frodo from danger. 
Yes. <laughs> when he's he's a head taller than all of them. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of Frodo, we cut backstage to Mean Gene, who is with Jimmy Hart, who is bouncing around like a nervous wreck, and Frodo Baggins slash the giant, who is monstrously tall and imposing, mm-hmm. like four hobbits stacked on top of each other. <laughs> yes, very much so. And Tony Schiavone, guess who I have with me? The seven foot, four inch, 472 pound WCW heavyweight champion of the world, the giant. I'm going to talk to him in a moment tonight. He's going to be defending here at Slamboree against Thing. But before we get to that, Jimmy Hart, you are ner- you are really nervous. You're going to be handcuffed outside of the ring to the total package, Lex Luger. Please, Lex, listen to me. It's not too late. We don't have to be handcuffed together, baby. <sighs> oh, you look at you dribbled all over the floor. You made a fool of yourself. <laughs> now, giant, let's talk about Sting. Here's a man that has been to the top of the mountain before on three occasions, on five occasions. Sting may have gone to the top of the mountain, but the problem is he's not on top of the mountain now. Because the giant's on top of the mountain. That means that I'm king of the hill. Sting, you can be hungry. You can try to take what's mine, but it's not going to happen. You've been a thorn in my side, a rat under my bed, a cockroach in my apple pie. Tonight, I exterminate everybody. You, Lex Luger, maybe even you if you get in my way. Wait a minute. Earlier on, you made a comment about Diamond Dallas Page. You said, bring on Diamond Dallas Page, the Lord of the Ring. Keep in mind, first things first, you've got to get by this challenger tonight. And a lot of folks are putting their money on Sting, quite candidly. They put their money on Sting. They're guaranteed they're going to lose. The only way to bet is to bet big and bet on the giant. Dallas Page, think about what just happened tonight. Think about what's going to happen to you. All right, that sets the scene for the big one here tonight as part of Slamboree. The Giant, the WCW Heavyweight Champion, is going to be facing Sting. Some fairly odd metaphors from Giant there, but I thought this was a really good interview. Considering he's been in wrestling for just about a year at this point, he is amazingly comfortable giving promos, and he's totally confident in his persona. He nailed the attitude and confidence in this one, and it's really amazing how quickly this all seems to have come together for him. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Actually, almost literally a year, because the first time he appears is last year's Slamboree, right? That's correct, yeah. This is incredible. Uh, dude was a natural for getting into wrestling. Oh, yeah. Not, not just because of the size. Yeah, he absolutely understood the mindset, seemed to, that you had to do. This. Yeah. I do, I do think he missed a great opportunity, though. At, at one point, he says, Sting's no longer on top of the mountain because the giant's there now. He really should have said, Sting may have been to the top of the mountain before, but I am the mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Between that and, and the almost winter is coming bit with, with Glacier, we got some real, <laughs> real Game of Thrones stuff ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we talked about Lord of the Rings tonight, but maybe it's more of a Game of Thrones show. <laughs> yes. Gene throws back to Tony, and it's time for our final match. So our final match is Sting, accompanied by Lex Luger, versus The Giant with the mouse of, with the mouth the mouse of the South. Maybe better, yeah, that would be great. With the mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, for the Giants WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. After winning a number championship match uh, early in the year. Giant would finally beat Ric Flair for the title after some tension would build between them. It's part of the whole, uh, sort of the ending of the Four Horsemen and 
Dungeon of Doom. The Alliance to End Hulkamania. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of put into that because obviously doing the title from Flair doesn't make them happy. They're following that. They would have this story where Luger was supposed to challenge Giant, but he'd show up late on the one show, so Sting would wrestle instead. <laughs> There's this odd moment where Luger like runs in during the main event, like with, with his bag, like he just got there somehow. Yes, <laughs> you remember quite well, and uh, and helps Sting out, which will lead to in the next week getting his title shot, as mentioned before. If I recall correctly. Him getting the title shot on the next week involves him literally being shown camping out yes. in front of the arena so that he will not be late for it this time in one of the greatest opening shots of any Nitro ever. Correct. Yes, that, that, is, that is how it worked, yeah. <laughs> you see Luger bundled up in a sleeping bag on the sidewalk <laughs> right outside the arena. Hey, let him in. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, like, could, couldn't you let the poor guy in? <laughs> yeah, right? He works there. I mean, he's going to, at least. Yeah. Holy crap. Yeah, so it was part of the whole Brick Flair and Savage thing. Flair would regularly have a table near ringside with flowers and like a buffet practically sometimes. Yes. So he could spend more of Savage's money, quote unquote. So as part of that match, uh, John would take Luger outside the table and choke slam him through it, which you would think would put his, you know, entering a massive tournament in jeopardy, but obviously it did not. Not that it mattered because he didn't make it past the first match and still got a towel shot regardless, so. Well, the, the secret to Luger selling is the, the rapid explosion of air released by the noise. It like absorbs all the force oh. of the blow, or emits all the force of the blow, so it doesn't go into his spine or other vulnerable parts of his body. Is it like the idea if you're falling from an airplane towards an explosion, the blast slows you down and saves your life? Yeah, just this one hasn't yet been busted by Mythbusters. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we'll get him, get him on back on that. Yeah, yeah. Man Called Sting brings out Sting, accompanied by Lex Luger, as Tony talks about Luger proving himself against the giant after being thought to be ducking him. We don't get a Sting jacket today. He should have borrowed Armstrong's America jacket. Yeah. Get a neat Sting look, though. He is moving towards Crow Sting's hair, but he has the bright colors and face paint that he's used for the rest of his career. I honestly really like this look that he has in 96. The giant comes out to the Dungeon of Doom's ominous theme, bathed in green light, which looks pretty nice. Mm -hmm. Tony says, giant doesn't have to beat Sting, and the only thing he can do is whatever he wants. (laughs) Because even if he gets DQ'd, he still ends up the champ. Dusty agrees, the champ has an advantage, and nobody can match the size and the power of the giant. Buffer does the introductions. Luger and Hart are going to be handcuffed at ringside, and Buffer calls Sting the man known as Sting, which is not quite as catchy. No. Giant is from a part of the world unknown to man. <laughs> really? That's okay. <laughs> Some mirror triangle, that's where he's from. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Let's get ready to rumble. Sting looks nervous. Giant shoves him around, but Sting tries a high-velocity crossbody, but he bounces clean off and splats on the mat. Stare down, and Giant shoves him, but Sting keeps coming back. Sting tries a sleeper, but Giant knocks him off. Drop kicks and a clothesline, but Giant is not even bothered. Sting, shocked, rolls out, and Luger has to encourage him. Maybe uh, Bubba was right last year that Sting's faith in himself was shaken. Yeah, it just, it just took a while to take effect, yeah. 
Back in, Sting encourages cheers from the crowd, and they oblige big time. Sting hits an enziguri, but Giant ignores it, and catapults him across the ring with a big boot. Sting tries a slam, but Giant lands on top for two. Giant is rather tired of letting Sting pinball off of him, so he batters Sting to a pulp with elbow drops, shoulder blocks, which Dusty calls battering rams, <laughs> clubbing blows, a headbutt to the little stingers, <laughs> chokes, and a body scissors using the ropes. Tony spots Hart talking to Luger, or filibustering per Dusty, <laughs> and wonders if he's trying to sway Luger back to his side. Anderson catches Giant using the ropes and breaks the hold, so Giant just punts Sting in the gut, ignores a kick, and hurls Sting outside. Giant considers a chokeslam through Flair's table, but Luger blocks the table with Jimmy Hart's body. <laughs> Great spot. It was really good, yeah. With Sting dazed on the apron, Giant tries a drop kick. I repeat, a drop kick. But Luger pulls Sting out of the way, and Giant splats on the mat. Heenan builds just how amazing a spectacle Giant's dropkick is. Mm-hmm. Anderson checks on Sting, but Sting instinctively back elbows him, knocking him out. Giant tries a cross body in the corner, <laughs> which is amazing to see. Yeah. But Sting dodges, and Giant lands on the top rope. A stinger splash folds Giant in half. Sting lands hard punches, but Hart climbs, Luger follows, and Giant grabs Luger by the throat. Repeated Stinger splashes can't break the hold, so Sting interposes himself and boots Giant in the face. <laughs> that does the trick. <laughs> A dazed Luger slumps from the apron, pulling the lighter Hart across the turnbuckle. Sting notices Hart and tries a Stinger splash, but Luger, waking up, accidentally pulls Hart down, and Sting eats turnbuckle. Sting wobbles and falls, headbutting Giant in the Etten. <laughs> Anderson recovers. Sting hits a tremendous top rope splash for two, but Giant's kickout throws Sting on to poor Anderson. <laughs> Another top rope splash, and Sting locks on the Scorpion Deathlock, but there's no ref. Hart tries to hit Sting with his megaphone, but Luger struggles with him. Luger yanks the megaphone free, but accidentally sends it right into Sting's face. Sting, dazed, is easy prey for the Giants' choke slam, for the three count and the win. Tony and Dusty question if Luger might have done that on purpose. Giant screams into the camera and says he dares anyone to take the belt from him. Luger runs in to check on Sting as we get the replays. Dusty argues that Luger hit Sting on purpose, but Tony actually ends up agreeing with Heenan that it was probably an accident. The final hit with the megaphone I thought actually looked better on the replay. From the original angle, it looked like Luger could clearly see Sting before the hit, mm -hmm. but on the replay, I felt it was much clearer that he only just turns to look as the megaphone goes flying. Right. Because Sting is turning into the hold as it's happening. Right. The Tiger Sting is there and you can look and see him first, yeah. Yeah, Sting ends up in front of them just before the thing comes flying at him, so it's actually very nicely timed, I thought. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on this one? So I'm of two minds in this match. The first part, I really like how Sting works with Giants. Mm -hmm. Sting really builds up how strong and powerful and just how hard to maneuver and knock around Giant is. Commentary really builds up as well. I thought they had a nice job explaining yes. how strong he is. Like when he does a body suit with his legs, they talk about how you know, your legs are stronger than your arms, so a guy that big, that's even more deadly. 
<laughs> yes. It's a nice touch. That was some great commentary there, yeah. So that part of the match I really like. Sting does his part well. Giant reacts well. They're wise to use Giant this way because he's obviously less experienced than Sting is. So they basically let Sting guide the match through these moments, which totally makes sense given he's mm-hmm. been wrestling as a main character for, what, 10 years now at this point? And Giant, as we've just established, has had literally one year of experience. And not, not all that even wrestling, yeah. Right. Now, the other side of this is all the sort of chicanery they go through on the outside. Some of it I like, like you talk about the bit where Luger blocks the chokeslam with Art's body is really good. Brilliant. Yeah. There's, a lot, there's some good like, stuff there. Other parts, I like the when he supposedly pulls Hart out of the corner in the way. I think that kind of works. Depending on the angle, some of you look at it, it's not clear if he is actually pulling him or not, or Hart's just like, sort of naturally falling out of the way. Yeah. I think that one doesn't come off as well as the megaphone part does. Of of the uh, the spots where they get involved, that's the one that's the weakest to me. Right. This match starts are really strong. You really show Papa Giant is how determined Sting is, how he's fighting through this. Everyone looks really good. And then they get just kind of get really busy. I think they get to the right place in the end. It just it feels like Giant's an unstoppable monster, and Sting is this you know guy who can fight from beneath and keeps fighting, like we've seen with him and Vader many times at this point. Mm-hmm. That absolutely works. But then there's just so many bells and whistles going off here. This has to happen here, for this to happen here, this happened here, and so on and so forth. It's so complicated, you'd think DDP booked this match. <laughs> I don't reckon one for DDP joke there. Maybe he did. Uh, yeah. Maybe, maybe it was behind the scenes. That would explain a lot. <laughs> I don't, and I don't dislike the match after that, but it's definitely, it's different. Okay. Because all of a sudden, all these things are happening to allow Giant to basically survive in this match, for the most part. Obviously, him doing the power kick out and accidentally crushing the ref still makes him look strong. But overall, you know what I mean? It's just, these things have to happen for him to win the match, when before he's this indomitable force that Sting is keeping up with, but just barely. Yeah, I, I, I can get that. It takes a slight turn that. for me, that's all. It's still a good match, though. For me... After a very dull night, for the most part, this brought the kind of spectacle that I wanted. Sure, absolutely. Giant comes off as an incredible, imposing figure who can move with surprising speed and agility, as especially demonstrated by his dropkick and crossbody. Still can't believe he can do those. Yes. Sting may have some of the best crowd reaction we've yet seen from him here, getting them absolutely rabid for his comebacks. And he expertly uses sheer velocity to get across the effort that he's making to take the giant down, and to make giant look awesome when he still stands. That opening crossbody by Sting is one of the most amazing bounces you will ever see. Oh yeah. He just totally goes for it, and he lets himself fall almost uncontrolled to get across just how hard he hit and how little it moved the giant. Mm-hmm. Sting makes the giant look amazing in this match. Oh yeah. And the giant really doesn't need help looking amazing, but, no. but Sting makes it. <laughs> I was worried Luger and Hart would be a distraction, but I actually thought they just gave the match a deeper storyline, and some intricate but largely well-executed moments, where the tide turns one way or the other because of their involvement, but to me never really took the focus off Sting versus the Giant. Mm. Okay, I can see your, your point on it as well, and I do wonder if part of the reason for all those is, again, Giant has one year of experience. Mm-hmm. He's not at the stage in his career where you would normally be in a match of this uh, a magnitude. Oh, for sure, yeah. He gets there because, I mean, why the heck wouldn't you put this guy in your main event immediately? Absolutely. 
with his size and power and ability to throw drop kicks as a like seven footer mm. and his raw charisma. I mean, I would shoot him to the top two, but there are limitations to his performance still. So I can understand where you're like, okay, he can do this, this, and this, then we'll have some chicanery. Yeah. And then he can do this, this, and this. You can kind of see that coming across. Yeah. But for me, it worked. I can see some argument the other way as well. I think, though. yeah, I just think there's like a touch too many things happening at the end. Yeah. There's just a point where it goes from a straight giant sting match to giant sting match, and now Jimmy Hart and Luger are doing this, and they're doing that. Yeah. And this fall, that this caused this to happen. Yes, the domino effects going off. Mm-hmm. I don't dislike the whole thing. I think it ultimately ties together, but there's, yeah, there's like maybe one too many thing that happens to protect the giant, which serves the story of he's this indomitable force that's on the title who can stop him. At the same time, I mean, some of the moments actually really get him more hits. Like he takes, I think, like five stinger splashes. Oh, that part. No, yeah, that part I was the other hand, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying on that. Mm. Regardless, I thought, excellent match to end the night, and it's another demonstration both of the greatness of Sting and of the sheer potential that the Giant has. For sure. One thing I was just thinking is kind of funny when we knew we were going to do this show is, so real-life timing-wise, Paul White slash Giant slash Big Show, as he just went to WWE's rival company, AEW, which is also where Sting went. That's true. (laughs) Weirdly how both things line up like that. All we need is Christian showing up in this show somehow to make everything line up in a really weird coincidence. (laughs) Here's him in the crowd. Oh, there we go. Yeah, maybe. Obviously, as we noted just a little bit ago, uh, the Giant would defend his title against Lex Luger at the Great American Bash due to reasons. Before that, he would go on the very next Nitro after this, where he'd randomly have to defend the title against, of all people, Arn Anderson. All right. Which I don't mind that match, but it's weird. Again, someone who didn't right. survive one round of Battle Bowl getting a title shot. Yeah, he blatantly did not win the Battle Bowl yeah. tournament. Okay, yeah. Both him and Luger didn't even make it through one match. Right. And it's like, and okay. They're the next contenders. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, just on the next show, you know, Flair is on commentary for, I think, most of it. Uh, and he's just, like so happy that Arn's going to get a title match. They don't explain why he has a title match. He just does. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that's kind of interesting is that. So the night right before this is the last time when it's just an hour show. Right. They experiment on the very next show, the one with Arn and Giant Wrestling, making it 90 minutes. And the very one next one after that, which I watched for, obviously, story research, is the full two-hour one, which sticks for a while. Yes. Besides it's being right before, within like two months of Bash the Beach and the industry changing forever, arguably... We also have just even the actual landscape of how the show works changing right around the time of the show. Right. And is the two hour the first two hour one, is that the Hall show? Yes, correct. Yeah. So yeah, two weeks after this, everything begins to change. It's during a random match on Nitro two weeks from after the show, yeah. That Scott Hall and his lovely full denim ensemble makes his first appearance, calling out Scheme Gene and the Nacho Man, among other people. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it, it positions this show interestingly, doesn't it? Yeah. It's really inconsequential and also very consequential. Yeah. Without this show, you probably would not have the rise of DDP, or at least it would look very different than it does. Yep. But also, you can ignore the majority of what happens on this show. Yeah. And the industry is going to change totally starting two weeks from now. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating to see that. It's both a key show to watch and a show you can also miss without missing most of anything. Yeah. <laughs> Tony runs down the events of the night and the three title retentions that we saw. Dusty proclaims that Paige won the Lords of the Ring, mm-hmm. then argues with Heenan over Luger's complicity in that final strike. Heenan claimed Luger's hands were sweaty. <laughs> Tony signs off as Heenan wonders where Paige put his ring. <laughs> Slamboree 96 is done. So overall thoughts on Slamboree 1996? So the thing with this show is, it's not actually, I don't think, any longer than other shows. Like, if you look at the total timestamp on it, it's around, like, 2 hours and 45 minutes or so. Somewhere around there, yeah. But it feels four times longer. Yeah. In a perfect world, the idea of all this nonstop action for the first eight matches is great. There's no no break, there's no letdown. But at the same time, there's also no break and no letdown <laughs> right? for you to recover. So it's, it almost feels like one hour-long match, practically, this first part of the show. Actually, a little over an hour, I think, altogether with intros and exits. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a show that feels so much longer than it actually is because of the way they formatted it. I think to make it seem more exciting. Mm-hmm. It just does the opposite, for, at least for me. Yeah, no, I agree. It's like... It's match, 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 match. It's like there is no break between them. Yeah. The last group will leave and the new group will start coming in without any segment between them whatsoever. Yeah. You made a point when we originally watched this together that once we got past the Flair Savage old thing, like look at the time on this show. We we're only like an hour and 15 minutes into the show. Yes. But it felt like a whole show just went by because <laughs> it's eight matches. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's one of the shows I really, I don't know, like, I can't necessarily recommend the whole thing because there's a lot of filler and there's a lot of stuff that's eh, okay and nothing's really terrible, but so much does so little to stand out. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, the latter half, for the most part, arguably the kind of the latter half of Battle Bolts or cover of the other half of it makes up for a bit. It's just one of those shows where the latter half is so much better than the first half, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not going to say Slambury 96 is a disaster. No. But it's definitely bad. Yes. It's not that there's any one part that goes badly. In fact, almost every match is on its own, entertaining or at least acceptable. The problem is that of the 14 actual matches on this, I'm excluding Flair and Savage versus the Public Enemy for obvious reasons, 10 are tag matches based around a very similar concept. Mm -hmm. They just start to lose all meaning and impact after a little while. And I was very much done with them long before we were out of them. Yes. There's only so many times that you can see tag partners forced to fight or hated rivals forced to team up on the same show before you just don't care about it anymore. Yeah. Battle Bowl shows are already a bit of a slog with so many matches that just don't generally have their own strong independent stories. The choice to go far, far overboard on repeated themes on this show makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. There are unquestionably some bright spots. Steiner versus Steiner. Page's antics, Barbarian versus Meng, and Savage with and versus Flair are some of the standouts from the tag portion. And aside from that, each of the three singles matches was great for different reasons, and Battle Bowl itself, while slow to start, had a good conclusion that seriously made Diamond Dallas Page as a star. But that's the thing. Watch any individual match from this show, and there's a fair chance you'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But watch the show all together. And it'll pretty well bore you to death. Yeah. It's such a strange feeling. 
I kind of like this match. I kind of like that match. None blew me away, but they were fun. So why don't I like the show? Because there's just too much of the same. Yeah. I really wish they'd done this differently. Mm-hmm. Pace it more like Starcade 92. Only show the second round of the Lethal Lottery on this show. Just put the rest on the Nitros leading in. Maybe rearrange things a bit so you still get Steiner versus Steiner as a second round match, sure. But otherwise, the second round matches they had, plus the three singles matches, plus Battle Bowl, would make a perfectly nice pay-per-view. Especially since they'd have a lot of extra time to distribute amongst the matches to give them more room to develop. It helps stop the show from feeling so rushed. Yes. Like you were saying, it's like, there's this isn't stopping. Why does it feel like one match? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, to your point about splitting the matches up, this is the list of shows currently running for WCW at this time. Monday Nitro, Saturday Night, Prime, Pro, which are two different shows, apparently. Okay. Main Event, and Worldwide. <sighs> they had all these shows, and they had to put all the Battle Bowl on this show. Yeah. Yeah, if it, if it was more like Starcade 92, where it was like, okay, we've got some Battle Bowl stuff, but we've got a bunch of other things. Yeah. I think I'd like this way more. For sure. Because I like that show. Yeah. Production is fine this time, aside from missing a tag or two and how Slater got dumped out. Mm-hmm. No real complaints there. True. And the commentary team, no surprise, I loved. Some of the best stuff on the night is just the Tony, Bobby, and Dusty talking up a storm bits and the joking and arguments that they get into. But they still managed to do a great job of getting across strategies and storylines in the process. Tanay, joining them for his one match, does a good job as well as an absolutely exhaustive resource of facts on wrestlers and moves. And the bit with him trying to explain Conan's show as Heenan aggressively tried to stop him was great. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's weird, but this is a bad show without any actual bad moments. Mm-hmm. It feels bizarre to say that, but it's true. Yeah. The matches might be short, but they can be fun. There aren't many promos, but the ones they have show tons of energy. The commentary is great. The concepts are interesting. But repeated themes and an overabundance of effectively the same match just ruined this thing. Yeah. Driving it far, far below the quality of prior years. Add to that the utter abandonment of the excellent Legends and Hall of Fame theme. True. A decision which perplexes me to no end. And this is totally skippable. For sure. So when I went to my rewatch without you, I mostly went through the early Battle Bowl matches to get my thoughts and stuff together. I intentionally didn't watch the singles matches because I wanted to give them their own break, which they don't get on this show. So that's why I got got more out of watching the main event, the Conan Liger match, and the Malenko Armstrong match by watching them separately. Yep. Breaking the whole thing up a bit. Yeah. It's one of those shows that you you really should do that. Absolutely, yeah. All right, at long last, it's time for Match of the Night and MVP. So, Al, your Match of the Night, please. Hmm, okay, so I'm torn between the Liger-Conan match, which definitely grew on me on a rewatch. You have some time to sort of breathe. From my critiquing, I did really like the Armstrong-Malenko match. And, again, for any critiquing I did, I did like the Sting-Giant match. Um, I'm so torn. I feel like I feel like I should go with Liger Conan, but I think just part of my complaints about how maybe overbooked the thing is, I think Sting versus Giant is the match that gets the most crowd reaction. Mm-hmm. So I think that plays it just ahead for me. Okay. Plus, it has storyline going into as well, not just being a a admittedly interesting one-off, you know, first-time match between two national stars. Okay. 
Yeah, for me, I was also choosing between the exact same three. Um, obviously, there was basically no chance I was going to include a tag match in my list of the top three tonight. <laughs> no. Yeah, so Armstrong versus Malenko, Conan versus Liger, or Giant versus Sting, they all are quite close. But I'm going to go with Armstrong versus Malenko. Okay. Just had a very strong story running through it, with Malenko's absolute focus on Armstrong's knee, bolstered by his incredible hold variety, and Armstrong's excellent pretty much steamboat-level selling. So for me, it was actually the highlight of the night. Okay. MVP? So in spite of all the shaking we give of how the Battle Bowl format is laid out, I think MVP of the show has to be DDP. Mm-hmm. In his matches, good or bad, he was a highlight, no matter what. You can see his influence throughout that. And obviously the show built to his big moment, and he definitely delivers on that. Yeah. I'm total agreement. This could only go to one man, Diamond Dallas Page. Mm-hmm. It's weird as this night is, it starts his meteoric rise and it establishes the Diamond Cutter as the finisher in WCW, one that he can hit from anywhere and that could put anyone down for the count. Yeah. And as dumb as a battle royal that you can also win by pinfall, except almost nobody tries, <laughs> is Page uses it really well and he works hard there and in his other two matches to establish himself as a star. His story is central to the night, and he makes the most of it. Honorable mention, though, to Brad Armstrong for the amazing selling and the America jacket. Oh, agreed, yes. <laughs> and uh, the honorable mention to the Giant for really delivering in his match. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, there, there were great performances tonight, no doubt. Yeah. I think DDP just has the centrality. For sure, yeah. And that wraps up our review of Slambury 96. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Slamborees as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. That's that's another new one. I say, let's keep growing, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Keep finding random places I can submit the show. So there you go. Absolutely. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Slamboree 97. The tradition continues. Uh, what, what tradition? Yeah, wait, what? WCW entirely broke every tradition this year. It should be Slambury 97. The tradition starts. Yes. A new tradition. (laughs) There you go. That sounds more dignified. It does. Yeah. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Our 11th match in the second round of the Lethal Lottery is... Wait, that sounded like it was the 11th match of the second round. Uh, Oh, God, that'd be a horror show. Jeez, yeah.